Hey listeners, people often ask me how they can return the favor for all the free content that I provide, and I really appreciate that. So here's a few simple and free ways you can help. The first thing is to share the show on social media like Facebook and Twitter, which is really important in helping the show reach new people, and I'm super grateful when you guys do it. Second, give the show a rating and a review on iTunes. That really helps us out with the algorithm and boosts visibility. Today's episode is brought to you by. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, And it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own N.A. beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia. And he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but 
basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. You know, I was kind of in a place where I felt I wanted to do a project um, that still you know, quenched my thirst for endurance challenge, pushing my own personal limits, but a little bit away from the traditional race course. Mm. Um, and that had a greater purpose behind it. You know, for me to combine my endurance athleticism with a, a charitable platform was a huge uh, draw for me in doing this project. That is Colin O'Brady, and this is the Rich Roll Podcast. Greetings, everybody. My name is Rich Roll. I'm your host. Welcome to the Rich Roll Podcast, the show where each week I sit down with a wide variety of incredibly inspiring people, thought leaders, paradigm breakers, athletes, doctors, filmmakers, authors, advocates, and even the occasional everyman. And I do this across all categories of wellness, fitness, food, entrepreneurship, creativity, and basically just positive social change. And hosting this podcast has completely changed my life in innumerable ways. I can't even articulate how much uh, meaning it has to me personally. And my hope is that it will serve you in your journey to unlock your best, most authentic self. And on that point, and before getting into the meat of today's episode, I thought I'd share a listener email with you. Now, look, I get tons of incredible emails from you guys. I read all of them. 
Uh, I appreciate it more than you know, even if I don't always get back to everybody. And I haven't really shared any of these letters with you guys, because honestly, it feels a little weird and self-congratulatory, to be honest. But I got one this week that really impacted me, and I think crystallizes why I do what I do. So I wanted to share it with you guys. Uh, It's from a guy called Aaron. I'll leave his last name out of it in case he doesn't want to be personally identified. And it goes like this. Hey, Rich. I'm sure you've heard a thousand times that you have inspired someone to change their lives for the better. I feel from your podcast and videos that though you receive this praise often, it does not appear to change you. Bravo for that. Thank you for that, Aaron. Anyway, I'd like to share my story with you. I am 41 years old and my weight has always been an issue. At mid 41, I weighed 305 pounds at well over 40% body fat. I have diabetes and refused to take medication. So my fasting blood sugar was about 160. My blood pressure and cholesterol was higher than I'd like. I had aches and pains everywhere. I wasn't sleeping. I have liver and gallbladder issues and I was very out of shape. June 16, 2016. I had a heavy lunch at work, ribs and barbecue chicken with deep fried veggies like they do in the South. I live in North Carolina. And when I got back to work, I stopped halfway up a flight of stairs and thought I was gonna pass out. Sweating heavier than normal and breathing heavier than normal, I remembered you from Finding Ultra. Sure, I listen to the podcast, yours and Julie's. I subscribe on YouTube, I own the Plant Powered Way. I watch the nutritionfacts.org videos, but I'm a paleo guy. I eat bacon every day and meat at every single meal with the occasional salad for crunch. I have burgers for breakfast, man. Well, fast forward to me on a flight of stairs about to pass out with a skyrocketing blood sugar. I have not had meat or dairy since. That was five days ago, Rich, five days. As of this morning, I have lost 10 pounds. My blood sugar has dropped 20 points or more staggeringly 13%. My blood pressure is normal. My aches and pains have gone. I'm sleeping better. I don't get lethargic after lunch, no matter how much I eat. And my endurance has almost doubled. I can play around a golf without being winded. I swam three extra laps Saturday. I climbed those same stairs yesterday and this morning without feeling bad. Five days. Wow. I feel our stories are so similar and that's why it resonates with me. I'm chained to an office job I hate, I'm overweight, and fighting food addiction by the minute. If you'll allow, I'd like to check in in a bit in a few more days and let you know how I'm doing. I know you're busy and do not expect a response or really expect you to even read this. I just wanted to share it with someone, someone who's been there, even if it's a virtual presence and community. Wow, five days and I'm a different person. I don't hate meat or have a political agenda. I just don't want it. And my body is starting to thank me for not eating it. All right, so that's the email. That is just amazing. An everyday guy making a few simple changes with almost immediate and really profound results. I'm just, I'm blown away. So congrats, Aaron. I live for this stuff. This is my fuel. I'm really touched. And I just wanna encourage you to keep going and simply say thank you for sharing your story. And yes please keep me posted and I can share uh, these updates on the podcast with your permission. It's up to you. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ring. Did you guys know that there's a home burglary every 13 seconds? Most of these happen in broad daylight with a burglar ringing your doorbell to make sure you're away before breaking in. Well, now there is this really cool new tech device and service that has been proven to stop burglaries before they happen. The Ring Video Doorbell allows you to see and speak to anyone approaching your door right on your smartphone, which is super cool. And right now, Ring is using their advanced motion detection technology to protect your entire property 
with the Ring of Security kit. The kit includes a Ring video doorbell for the front door, which is this cool little bell and video device that easily attaches to anything, as well as a Ring stick-up cam, which is this wireless, weatherproof HD camera you can install somewhere else on your property just to keep an eye on things. Both the Ring video doorbell and stick-up cam install in just minutes, and working together, they provide 24-7 monitoring of your entire home, whether you're in the living room, or thousands of miles away. So these guys sent me a kit, and I have to say, it's really cool. It's super intuitive, it's easy to use, and honestly, just really helpful without having to spend a fortune on some crazy security system. For a limited time, my listeners get $50 off the Ring of Security kit. It's the lowest price anywhere. Just go to ring.com forward slash richroll. So join the hundreds of thousands who protect their home with Ring by going to ring.com forward slash richroll for $50 off. That's ring.com forward slash rich roll. Today's episode is also brought to you by me undies. So what is this all about? I mean, what's the big deal? Underwear is underwear, right? Well, that's kind of what I thought, but, and this is the God's honest truth. Me undies is seriously the most comfortable underwear I have ever worn. Look, Whatever your fashion preference, most of us, not all of us, but most of us spend almost 24 hours a day in our underwear. So maybe it's time to give it a little thought, right? I'm not talking about making some kind of big statement, but it doesn't have to be boring or cheaply made either. Every pair of MeUndies is made from sustainably sourced Modal, a fabric that's twice as soft as cotton. Words can't really describe it, but once you try them on, you'll understand why MeUndies are called the world's most comfortable underwear. And if you don't love your first pair of MeUndies, they're free. No questions asked. Shipping is free in the U.S. and Canada, and you can save up to $8 a pair with the MeUndies subscription plan. So whether you get the subscription or a single pair, either way, you get 20% off your first order when you go to MeUndies.com forward slash roll. That's MeUndies.com forward slash roll for 20% off your first order, MeUndies.com forward slash roll. Okay, thanks for bearing with me because I've got a really amazing show for you guys today. If you're a longtime listener, then you know that I had Yale grad turned professional triathlete Colin O'Brady on the podcast back in January. It was on the eve of his world record attempt to become the youngest and the fastest human to ever complete the Explorer's Grand Slam. Now, this is an adventurer's challenge that entails summiting the highest mountain on each of the seven continents, as well as treks to both the North and the South Poles. Only 44 people in documented history have successfully completed this challenge at all. Most of these people devoted their entire life towards accomplishing this goal. And of the 44, only two have done it in under a year. So in case you missed it, definitely check out our first episode together. It's RRP 207. It's a great conversation about Colin's unique upbringing on a commune, his experiences swimming for Yale, how he survived an almost lethal burn accident that left him unlikely to even walk again, and then his Phoenix-like transformation into a professional ITU triathlete and Olympic hopeful, and how he then morphed into this mountaineer with the audacity to attempt such an incomprehensible feat of adventure athleticism. In any event, I'm super thrilled to announce that 
he did it. The guy did it. Not only did he absolutely smash the Explorers Grand Slam world record by an incredible 53-day margin, he did it in 139 days. The previous world record was 192 days. And along the way, he also beat the Seven Summits world record by two days. It's just amazing. More impressive than this mind-boggling achievement is Colin's commitment to service, his conviction to land a blow to childhood obesity by raising a million dollars on behalf of the Alliance for a Healthier Generation, which is a nonprofit founded by the American Heart Association and the Clinton Foundation dedicated to helping kids develop healthy habits. And this is a promise that he is now fully focused on following through on with all of his many incredible talents. So this is a conversation about the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual fortitude required to conquer this challenge, the obstacles faced and overcome. It's a conversation about life and death decisions. It's about risk and limits and fear. It's about the indomitable nature of the human spirit to overcome and persevere. And it's about giving back. So without further ado, Ladies and gentlemen, the incredible Colin O'Brady. Dude, you did it. <laughs> I can't believe it. Yeah. Unbelievable, man. I'm so proud of you. It's amazing. I'm so glad that you uh, uh, made your way up to our house to reprise uh, our first podcast and tell us all about how you, uh, how you broke this world record and did all the crazy stuff that you did. It's just amazing. Yeah, man. It's, uh, it's crazy. It doesn't feel like long ago I was sitting, sitting in your studio before just, uh, talking about this and, uh, it was a lofty goal at a time, an idea we'd put a ton of obviously effort and work into, but, uh, you never know how these things are going to turn out. Um, particularly a lot of things had to go our way with, uh, not just perseverance, but luck and logistics and all this sort of stuff. So to be sitting here, having successfully completed not just one, but two world records is, uh, yeah, beyond belief, really. Yeah, Still just sinking in. It's crazy. So you were here, let's see, it was January, right? So it was about six months ago? Yeah, I think it was. we actually did it uh, in December because I left on Christmas days, but it was right. only a week or so before I left. It was right. pretty much right as I was getting ready to take off for Antarctica. So uh, Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. So I want to go through the whole thing and get the <laughs> entire experience, but uh, why don't we start with Everest? because there was a lot of stuff that went down on Everest, right? So Everest kind of fell. It wasn't the final challenge, but it was the second to last, right? Yes, yes. So just, uh, I guess, to give a little context for those who didn't maybe hear the first one, the, uh, the record I was trying to set was the Explorer's Grand Slam. So that's to climb the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents, as well as complete an expedition, both the North and South Pole. And, name, so, and let's name, why don't we just run through the names of those mountains? Yeah, so started off at the South Pole, then the tallest mountain in Antarctica is Mount Vincent. From there, went to Aconcagua, which is the tallest mountain in South America, and then to Kilimanjaro in Africa. After that, it was to Karsten's Pyramid uh, in Australasia, and then onward to Mount Elbrus in Russia, the tallest mountain in Europe. Mm -hmm. And then the final third, which was really the big, the big, big third, was uh, the North Pole straight to Everest and then to finish with Denali. Right. So 
That that was the challenge. That was the gauntlet. And you did it in 132 days. So 139 days to complete the uh, Explorers Grand Slam. And then we can talk about this later. But I also snuck in a second world record by beating just the seven summits record in 132 days. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So so the Explorers Grand Slam record you crushed because the other record was like 190 Exactly. Yeah. And the seven summits record you just beat by like two days. Yeah, it was right down to the very wire. So it wasn't what I had set out to achieve. But once we get in towards the end of the project, realized it was in play, we had to uh, had to chase it. Had to make it happen. Yeah, exactly. So well, all kinds of crazy uh, ups and downs along the way. This was not easy. Not all the chips fell in your direction, of course. Yeah. There's no way they were going to. For sure. Lots of obstacles, uh, but you persevered, man. Yeah, it's and you crazy. Look, you look healthy. <laughs> you didn't like, get, yeah. you're not covered in frostbite and yeah. all kinds of stuff that could have happened. You got all the fingers, all the toes. That was uh, that was the primary goal, much more, more important than the world record. So yeah, to come back um, and be, you know, I'm exhausted, still haven't really caught up on sleep. Body's mm-hmm. definitely still thrown around, but considering that that's the worst of it, I mean, yeah, didn't, uh, didn't get injured out there. And that was one of the things that I feel like is just a, a stroke of luck. Cause you know, you want to think, you know, in the mountains, there's obviously a lot of risks, you know, avalanche or falling into a crevasse or something like that, the big scary mountain things. But it's also just 139 days, a long time just to be like out there. You're gonna trip mm-hmm. over a tent pole or twist your ankle on some innocuous rock or something like that. And so for me, one of my biggest fears in starting this project was something stupid is going to end this. Like I'm going to, you know, be going pee outside my tent in the middle of the night and, you know, trip over a rock and that's going to be it. So fortunately, none of that happened. I think that's the underappreciated truth in any of these amazing adventures that, that, that people undertake. You know, it's easy, like you said, to point at, you know, the big scary things, but it's the little things like making sure you have clean underwear, like cause yeah. you get a rash or, you know, like stupid, totally. tiny little no, stuff yeah. that can really just derail the entire thing because yeah. you got a blister or something like that. No, I couldn't you know? agree more. And particularly just flying from place to place, country to country, just, you know, you don't wash your hands one day after a meal and, you know, that's it. You know, right. you're, you're sick for two weeks and the, the record's over. So, yeah, I, I really can't believe the, uh, the resilience of the body and able to make make it through this one all in one piece. How many people have done, have completed the Explorers Grand Slam? So um, the, the most recent number I heard was just under 50. So something like 48 or 49 people have ever completed the Grand Slam. Um, and only four of those have done it in under uh, a calendar year now. So very few, most of the people that do it, you know, it's an amazing accomplishment. It's like and a it's lifetime out, right. Thing. Yeah, a lifetime Spend thing. Your lifetime yeah, you train one of these expeditions, you come home, you rest, you dream and plan up the next one and then get after it. So, um, yeah, to do it all this quickly, back to back to back, was. Uh, I, I even am right now smiling, thinking about it. I can, can't really realize, yeah. realize it actually happened. So, and and of the people, so there, so four have done it in a calendar year, and then obviously one other. There's one person that did it in 190 whatever yes. it was days. Um, were those uh, expeditions that were. Uh, backed by sponsorship dollars, like sort of professionally organized and and really conducted for the purpose of, you know, speed, for lack of a better word, to see how quickly it could be achieved? Yeah, so the record that I broke was a guy named Richard Parks, a Welsh guy, and he definitely set out uh, with some sponsorship with the intention of setting the sort of the high bar uh, for the Explorers Grand Slam. Mm -hmm. So he really, you know, went after it. Um, And the other other two are are women who've done it in under a year. And again, they they both were uh, trying to break records when they they did it um and uh, i think they uh both those women more were 
self-funded, um, had money from other parts of their career and other parts of their life. Um, but yeah, the people that have done it that quickly have done it intentionally that quickly to try to see sort of what the boundaries and barriers are for this, uh, this type of thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to backtrack too much over stuff we already talked about last time. And in the intro, I'm sure I said this, but I'll say it again, you know, make sure that you make a point of going and listen to our listening to our initial conversation. We go into your whole like sort of life story and backstory, professional triathlete, uh, survivor of this crazy burn accident that almost resulted in you like losing your leg, actually, you know, and being told you weren't going to walk again, going on to this incredible athletic career. And then this adventure that you just completed. I mean, it's quite a remarkable story. So for the full biography, <laughs> yeah. dial that one up. Uh, but I think it would be worthwhile to kind of just explore your motivations behind this. Uh, you know, what was it about this adventure that inspired you? Why did you want to do it? And, and you know, what were you looking, at least on the, on the beginning side of this before you embarked upon it, what were you looking to get out of it? Yeah, you know, for me, uh, like I said on this, maybe the first podcast was that, you know, I'd gotten to a point in my athletic career where it was amazing. You know, I had raced in 25 different countries, six different continents as a professional triathlete, you know, had my fair share of success, but let's be honest, I also had my fair share of down moments, not great races. Any, any athlete at any level knows it's not always good. Um, but things were looking, you know, great in my career. I had just come off a, a half Ironman win in 2014 at the end of 2014 and, you know, feeling good about where my triathlon was at, but it kind of hit me that, you know, I was kind of in a place where I felt I wanted to do a project um, that still, you know, quenched my thirst for endurance challenge, pushing my own personal limits, but a little bit away from the traditional race course. Mm. Um, and that had a greater purpose behind it. You know, for me to combine my endurance athleticism with a, a charitable platform was a huge uh, draw for me in doing this project. So not, you know, we set ourselves uh, the record, the goal to set this world record. Um, but the other goal we set ourselves was to raise a million dollars towards combating childhood obesity and doing some ton of outreach effort in the school. So that was really my driving force behind this was to create, you know, an inspirational campaign around, you know, getting kids excited about a window into the outdoors, being active, being healthy. Um, and, uh, our, our fundraising efforts are ongoing, but I really feel like with the kids I've connected with so far, this has been a great metaphor, um, for them to sort of see. Right. And the charitable organization is Alliance for a Healthier Generation, which that's is right. sort of an outpost of the Clinton Foundation. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So we um, we have our own small nonprofit called Beyond 7-2 for this project, but the all of the charitable dollars that we raise, 100%, none of it goes towards my climbing or anything like that. That's all separate for sponsorship or whatever. Um, goes 100% to kids programs that uh, with the Alliance for a Healthier Generation. So they're an amazing organization in the space. They're impacting 20 million kids in 29,000 school districts or schools nationwide um, and just doing fantastic work. So we're super proud to partner with them and support their efforts. What, are, what kind of programs are they? On? So they, they really have, you know, three mainstays in their, in their programs. Uh, the number one is uh, basically in school um, programs. So better physical education, better nutrition in the schools, <clears throat> 
um, which is fantastic. You know, it's we, not like we don't need that. Right. So that, that right <laughs> just there is great uh-huh. work. Um, second of all, of course, kids are only in school so many hours of the day. So it's, you know, trying to figure out, well, what are kids doing at home or can we get them involved in after school programs that also, you know, have that strong nu- nutritional aspect instead of going home and, you know, eating Oreo cookies or something and sitting right. in front of the TV, getting kids running around and, you know, eating healthy. So they'd have a great, robust after school program efforts. Uh, and then the third pillar is, uh, uh, because of the you know interaction with the the Clinton Foundation and some of the larger people involved you know with this project, um, they're able to sit down with uh, some of the large you know food and beverage companies. They don't take any money from food or beverage because of the conflict of interest, of right. course. But they're able to have a voice at the table. So you know they were able to get uh, the food and beverage companies to reduce calories and vending machines in schools by ninety percent voluntarily. Um, they were able to get apple slices in Happy Meals instead of French fries which you know god it, forbid yeah it's it's a it's a it's a tiny step but it's a step in a more positive direction than, than we've had so um you know i'm really really uh, great to support an amazing organization and i just think it's so important that kids the next generation grow up and live healthy lives you know right and in the wake of of your adventure i know you were didn't you visited i because i know from snapchat from yeah snapchat i know you were at the clinton foundation recently yes right? so yeah so we were in new york last week now there um, it's great. So we're continuing our charitable efforts uh, until we reach that million dollar fundraising goal. You know, we're rolling on our way, but, uh, you know, we still, still have our work cut out for us. For me going how, away. How is it, how has it been going? Are, can you say how much you've raised or? Um, I don't know. I don't have the exact number. Um, there's still a couple, uh, corporate matching campaigns. So the Nike foundation was very supportive of this project. So Nike, all 20,000 of their employees, they've done a corporate matching dollar for dollar campaign. So we still haven't gotten some of those numbers back mm-hmm. in from that. Um, but, uh, no, we still have a work cut out for us to reach that million dollar fundraising goal. But for us, it was always a, um, not just the goal of while I'm climbing, but even more so important now that I'm back, that I can share the story, not only in the school kids, which is not fundraising efforts, but it's outreach. Um, and then I can also go share the story other places to, you know, raise money. Um, so it's a, it's an ongoing process that, uh, we'll continue to really commit to over the next, you know, few months or even year. Right. So you've already visited a bunch of schools. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's amazing. You know, the, uh, I met visited a bunch of schools before I left, kind of telling them what I was doing, and you know they were excited to hear the stories. Um, but what was amazing is that some number of you know PE teachers and teachers in some of these schools got really excited about this story and started following along daily with their kids. So I went back and spoke with some schools. Luckily, I got back right before school got out of session, uh, and uh, spoke to a number of schools that had been following along every blog, every Snapchat, every Instagram. Right. They knew the whole story. They were super excited and inspired. So Jim's full of you know. Five 500 elementary school kids you know, it just warmed my heart to hear what, you know, them, them sending me videos during while I was out there saying, you know, you're climbing Everest, but let me tell you what my Everest is. My Everest is to ride my bike to school every day. My Everest is to eat more fruits and vegetables. One day I want to graduate from college because no one in my family has. And I think if I live a healthy lifestyle, mm-hmm. like I can get there. And it was just amazing to see the smiles on their faces when I got back. And the truth is, is that you know, I was hoping to inspire them, but of course, you know, they surprised the heck out of me. They were my inspiration. You know, I was out there, you know, climbing Mount Everest and didn't think, you know, I was going to make it to the top or, you know, delayed at the North Pole and not knowing if it was anything was going to come together for us to work. And knowing that these thousands of kids around the nation who were following along so closely were sending me all that love and positivity definitely inspired me to keep going, no doubt. So I'm grateful to them (laughs) rather the other one than the other way around. Super cool. Yeah. So are you into doing 
lots of schools like are you open to that yeah like absolutely elementary schools high schools totally that's a you know that's a, a big focus for us um i should mention because i keep saying us i was the only one climbing these mountains but i feel like i climb them side by side with my partner jenna bisa my fiance um she's, she's really been right over here she's actually in the room with us right now <laughs> um but we don't have her on the mic at least yet i'll um, get her i'll get her, I'll get her in here in a minute um but no she's really been the rock behind this whole thing you know she supported this project from day one despite her own anxieties and fears of me going off into these crazy places um and has really been leading the charge with all of our outreach efforts you know she's the executive director of our nonprofit and just working her butt off um and committed herself fully to this whole project as well so just the media aspect of it was like a full-time job because as a subscriber to your newsletter and like <laughs> sort of absorbing all the content as it was unfolding i was like wow this is like a major you know it's, yeah it's like a broadcast yeah. channel <laughs> it's crazy i mean it's it's been so much work and yeah it was uh it's been a grassroots effort from day one it was you know me and jenna dreaming this up and just the two of us till i left and then we brought on my cousin mariana brady to uh do some of the social and some media stuff but between it's just the three of us making this whole thing happen mm -hmm. and uh it's been a lot of work but also a great joy and uh so to answer your question about the schools yeah absolutely you know once school is back in session in the fall we're trying to figure out how to do a more robust school tour and really get out there and spread this message all right well there's a lot of teachers and uh, school administrators and principals and PE teachers that listen to this show. So please they, reach they, out. Yeah. yeah Beyond72.com. Hit us on the contact page or email either Colin at Beyond72.com or Jen at Beyond72.com and we'll respond. Yeah, we're really excited about doing that. I mean, when I was in high school and junior high, they would bring people in to talk to us, but nobody who had done the kind of things that you had done. So I would imagine like kids would be super thrilled to like hear the stories. Yeah, it's a <laughs> tremendous joy for me. I love being in the schools. It's, it's really amazing. So let's hear some of these stories. Yeah. Right? I, I wanted we to, started with Everest know, and then we got like, like on I this. Wanna, I want to <laughs> camp out on Everest first just because yeah. it's it's sort of dramatic. And, and and one of the things that was really interesting about it is, you know, it didn't, it didn't go it didn't go as planned. There were a lot of struggles here. But you were sharing this on Snapchat, which is like, like first of all, how are you even getting like service to be able to get these <laughs> Snapchats out? And to see it unfold in real time was really kind of something amazing. And perhaps it might make sense to kind of set the stage with how the calendar works with Everest, yes. because it's a very compressed period of time where all these people were trying to get up Everest. Like, what is it like? It was, it was open for the first time in like two years, right? Exactly. So suddenly everybody descends on Everest and it became like a Snapchat store. There was a, there was a category on Snapchat just for Everest. And you were like the primary focus of that. And that was, I don't know how long that was up there but yeah. for a while. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, it's a, uh so basically, yeah, what you said about the calendar. So the last two years, there have been some pretty serious tragedy on the mountain. In 2014, there was a massive avalanche in the Kumbu Icefall, and 16 Sherpas died. And then the, the climbing season was closed from that. And then in 2015, right around the same time period, it, a year later, there was the massive avalanche in Nepal mm -hmm. that not only closed the climbing season on Everest, but of course, you know, devastated the country. I think nearly 10,000 people died and a lot of economic devastation, of course, from the destruction of infrastructure and buildings. So it's been a really tough couple of years um, in Nepal. And uh, one of the things about visiting Nepal, I, I went and did a training climb there before this project started. And just to see the resilience and the desire to, they want people there. They want people, you know, the tourism and all that is, is good for the economy. And it's just... Uh, 
in a, an amazing an amazing country, but definitely a country that's been through its fair share of hardship recently. Um, and so this was the first time anyone was trying to actually successfully summit Everest since 2013. So it had been a good almost three years since anyone had stood on the top of the world. Um, so that's kind of the context for Everest. And Everest can only be climbed in basically the second two weeks of May, but you need to be there for many weeks before to acclimate. To acclimate. And and how does the is there like a how do you even get to make sure that you get to be one of those people? Like, is there a selection process or a lottery? It's not a lottery. Um, basically, it's a, it's a fairly expensive uh, endeavor. Um, and so, you know, the, the climbing permit alone on Everest uh, is $11,000. Wow. And that goes pretty much directly to the Nepalese government. And then all the various other, you know, odds and ends on there really add up quickly. So it's expensive. That definitely makes it uh, less people able to go there. I'm, for me, fortunate to have amazing sponsors that could help support this project um but it uh it you know there's more more people sometimes because of it's not capped end up being there than probably should be there in fact a lot well, of things so they don't cap it they don't cap it um and there's controversy around that on one hand it's great because it's driving more people more people there more economic tourism dollars and that trickles down to just trekking and all this sort of stuff but at the same time you've also got uh, the problem of overcrowding on the mountain, which which we'll get to in a second. And, and no vetting, you know, I'm sure there's right. people going up who aren't quite ready to do that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a bucket, big bucket list item for a lot of people. And uh, unfortunately on that mountain, probably more than any mountain in the world, there's a... Uh, a lot of ego, maybe some people that aren't so prepared, and the stakes are truly life and death. And so those combination of things um, aren't uh, the prettiest side of Everest. Right. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. All right, so you get to there's a series of base camps, right, that you have to like work your way up towards. Yeah, so, walk so me through how this goes down. So just to, to go back a, a little bit before that, so the North Pole was the expedition just before Everest, and the North Pole is at sea level. So um, you know, for those who don't quite realize it out there, because it's a crazy concept, even me having been there, but it's you're just walking around on the floating sea ice. So you're literally on ice, floating around in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. You're drifting around, and when you arrive at the North Pole, there's nothing there. It's just the same as but the rest no of the ice. No elevation gain. You're at sea level. I mean, you can see the ocean at sea level, type of thing. I mean, you couldn't be closer to the sea than you are at the North Pole. And so that's the opposite of what you need for Everest. Unfortunately, the only time to be at the North Pole is as the Everest season is getting underway. And so most people leave for Mount Everest on about April 1st. And I didn't even begin my expedition to the North Pole until April 12th because mm -hmm. of a series of massive delays that happened there with you have to fly into this ice runway and it cracked and it was melting and there's all these problems probably related to climate change. Um, but 
basically right, so North Pole got pushed way back because of this cracked runway situation. Totally. So it was already going to be tight if I had been to the North Pole when I had planned leaving on April 4th as people are leaving for Kathmandu and Bay Everest Base Camp on April 1st. But now I don't even begin that till April 12th. So the anxiety building up inside of me, every day you're not on Everest. Every day you're not at altitude. The climbs I had done previous to this were just basically literally draining out of my blood in terms of acclimatization as I was bidding basically going in the wrong direction right. at this point. And that could point. be really a fatal decision driven out of, you know, expediency and ego. Like, I, I, it doesn't totally. matter. I'm fit. I'm young. I'll be fine. Totally. That's, that's why people die. And, they, and, you know, even doctors in base camp on Everest will tell you more often than not, the people that they find getting into trouble are young, fit people because they can push a little harder or think, oh, I'm fine. It's not going to happen to me or whatever. And those are the people that ascend too quickly, mm. get themselves into trouble and eventually succumb to severe altitude sickness and maybe even die. So, of course, I'm very aware of that as I'm going to Everest base camp. Twelve, You're losing 12 days of acclimatization. Totally. So I arrived to Everest base camp, which is at 17,000 feet on April 27th, literally the last person to arrive to base camp um, in, in all of, in all of Everest base camp. And mm -hmm. there's a, a good, you know, maybe three, 400 climbers in Everest base camp. So to be the last person showing up like, Hey guys, like ready right. to climb this mountain. And everyone's like, uh, we've been here a month. Right. Like, <laughs> what right. do you, what do you think you are? Um, I was scared. I mean, I was legitimately scared. I was worried. Um, you know, I, I tried to just, when be, you, when you, do you completely lose that acclimatization that you had gained from those previous ascents or can you, because you sort of like when you taper off, from training, but you can kind of build back up more quickly because that fitness is there. Is it similar with acclimatization or do you, have you completely lost it and you're at point zero with that? I think the science would point towards that you lose it within the two or three week period um, of being at sea level. And on, on the, the first two thirds of the project, actually we had our own hiccups on, on those pieces, but we got through it actually pretty quickly. So I finished Mount Elbrus on March 10th which was the last time I was at altitude before basically being at Everest Base Camp on April 27th. So we were super stoked to be like cranking out the first ones, but actually almost would have been better if I didn't get to the summit of Mount Elbrus until right mm. before the North Pole, mm -hmm. and then the North Pole wouldn't have had such a great impact. Right, so right. it was kind of compounding in that way, which was, uh, which was tough. But uh, yeah, Everest Base Camp is at 17,000 feet, just over 17,000 feet. And the way Everest is climbed is there's four camps higher, progressively higher than that. So, you know, simple names, Camp 1, Camp 2, Camp 3, Camp 4. Um, and you usually go up on the mountain. What I did was to go up to the mountain and touch camp three, um, come all the way back down to base camp in a series of days. That took about a week, get your body to sleeping up high, come mm -hmm. back down and then rest a little bit at base camp and then set out for the summit. Most people do what they call rotations on the mountain like that two or three times, but I only had enough time to do it once because mm -hmm even though I arrived late, it's not like I can summit any later than the rest of the people. There's a couple right. very specific summit windows that happened. That's when people climb the mountain and then the season's over or closed until the next year because the monsoons come and it's too much wind and too much precipitation. 
So the people that have been there for a month, what do they do all day? I mean, they have to, they're going <laughs> to go up to the next camp and touch it and walk back, but they only are probably doing that a couple of times, right? What are they doing the rest of the day? Yeah. Time? So when you're up on the higher mountain, it's pretty intense because you're climbing, you're tired, your body's pretty trash from the altitude, all that sort of stuff. Um, but, uh, to your question, looping back now about Snapchat is there's actually Wi-Fi at Everest Base yeah. Camp, <laughs> which is crazy to me yeah. because as a kid who explored a lot of outdoor areas when I was a kid, when you're at, when you're in the outdoors, you're camping, right. you're just like, you should be like out there. Right. And, uh, on Everest, uh, even more so than any other mountain that I climbed for this project, like there's literally just straight up like pretty decent Wi-Fi at Everest Base That's Camp. That's amazing. Um, you so, like stream Netflix and stuff? It's not quite on that level, right. but it's certainly enough to you like... You can upload a snap. Oh, for sure. You can upload a snap. You can, you know, send little videos, post to Facebook, whatever. Mm -hmm. So um, good for tourism. Yeah. But um, the cool thing about it with that was, you know, with this whole project, particularly with the inspiration behind inspiring kids is... I think it's harder to tell this story by saying, I'm going to go do this, come back six months later and say, Hey, I did this. Let me tell you the story right. of it. And maybe a snapshot or yeah, a slideshow, right? Something like that. But what was great was that we realized that when we set out to do this, there was going to be a tremendous amount of setbacks. Like if there was, it would be impossible for something this ridiculous to just mm -hmm. like go smoothly. And so we knew, Hey, if we just tell this story, succeed or fail in the long run there's there's a, a exciting narrative about perseverance ups and downs setbacks getting through those um of course when i was experiencing those setbacks for real i wasn't so excited about the whole right. process but um so to be able to share that in real time so not only the wi-fi and base camp of course helped doing this but we had you know i had a sat phone i had a sat modem where i could send it would take me 20 minutes to send one image you know it's not like fan that's not mm -hmm. like proper wi-fi but i could still send a photo hey i'm at the north pole hey i'm in antarctica doing this this is how i'm feeling you know blogs and all that sort of stuff to tell this story in real time and then uh, once we got to everest and there was even more wi-fi and stuff we started using uh, snapchat as a platform which honestly was uh you know, I felt very old in trying to uh, learn that medium. I felt like it was the first time technology was like passing me by. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I'm a lot older than you. I figured it out. I think you can figure it out. So I figured it out thanks to uh, my 24-year-old cousin who was uh, helping me get through it. But once I figured it out, I was like, this is amazing. It's such a cool way to just share this story. Um, and, you know, to actually really show people like this is what it's like to be, you know, on Mount Everest. This is the day that I'm doing. This is what I'm eating today. Here's the cook tent. Here's the people I'm with. Um, it was just really awesome. So to come back and, you know, share stories with people that were following along, it's amazing that they're like, oh, yeah, I loved when you showed this or that. Or mm -hmm. you look so tired on this day. Or this was so, so much elation. Just the joys, the ups and downs. And to be able to really share that fabric in a really kind of unfiltered way was super cool. Very cool. So you, uh, so there's one day that you wait, you, you're up at camp, was it four? And then you're going to, today's the day that you're going to make your summit attempt, right? Yeah. So I basically got word that there looked like there was a weather window opening up. Um, so I was at base camp at this point. Usually people climb to each camp, one camp at a time, or sometimes they'll skip camp one. Um, I was in camp two, but the weather window looked like it was only going to be two days long. So um, I was climbing with just myself uh, and a Sherpa, Pasang Bodhi, an incredibly strong climber who I had met in Nepal the year before. So just the two of us, we were able to make some decisions kind of a little more loose and on the fly than a typical larger expedition would with guides and tons of Sherpas and the whole thing. Um, so we decided, hey, let's try to get this weather window. Um, 
but what it's going to take is to go from straight from camp two directly to camp four. So basically mm. skipping an entire day of sleep and rest. And um, the main feature between those two is something called the Lotzi face, which is basically this 5,000 foot, you know, snow and ice, very pretty steep slope uh, that gets you up to camp four. Um, it was such a memorable day, feeling great. The sun was actually out. It's believe it or not, people don't quite realize this about Everest, but you know, it's crazy cold there at times. Like you can't have a single piece of skin exposed type of cold frostbite, obviously, you know, is a huge problem up there. But sometimes it's super hot. Like I'm climbing up the Lotzi face in this day. There's no, there's no wind at this point. The sun's out. I'm wearing like just a base layer and like kind of sweating a little That's bit, amazing. which is crazy. You're yeah. At- from the footage, it did look like it was really, the, the, the blue sky was so vivid, you know? Yeah. I mean, when it's clear there and obviously you're kind of just in this big snow basin that just the reflection off the light really just warms you up kind of like a little greenhouse effect or something like that. So then we got over this section, which is sort of the last really steep and challenging section before camp four. Uh, called the Geneva Spur and to both of our very big surprise we just get knocked by 50 mile per hour winds just right in the face we're like and this is right we're about to set up our tent basically to get ready for our summit bid the next uh, you know few hours later really you leave in the middle of the night so just a short rest and we get there quickly go from wearing our base layers to our biggest down coats our biggest you know down mittens like all this sort of stuff I actually ended up getting a little tiny piece of frostbite uh, on my cheek just not bad but just like kind of a wind chap you know Mm. cold cold injury there Um, totally was fine after a few days but enough to realize like hey we're in a tough bad situation here took us two hours just to set up our tent uh, in that wind at the south call wow and we pretty quickly realized we called back down to base camp where they have the the weather reports and this and they're like hey guys the weather windows closed it turned the weather on the summit's only getting worse it's going to be 50 60 70 mile per hours up there it's a Mm no-go um and at that point so much disappointment really just the physical effort to get up there you know, I'm getting nearing the end of this challenge. So I've been going for over a hundred days at this point, you know, working, chipping away at this, you know, grand slam goal. And to basically look at the face, it's crazy when you're at camp four, the summit of Everest looks close. Mm-hmm. It's 3000 feet higher still, but like it, it you can kind of see the whole route and you're like, that's the summit of Everest. Like it's right there. Like, Although, you know, I saw the footage in which you said that. Yeah. And I was looking at it. I was like, doesn't look that close. It looks like, <laughs> I think the way, the reason I think it looks close is when you climb a smaller mountain like, you know, Mount Hood, which is the mountain in my backyard, basically in Portland, Oregon, it's a 5,500 foot vertical gain on the, on the summit day. When you, you know, you climb it from your car in a parking lot and mm-hmm. climb up to the top, but the top's 11,000 feet. So the altitude's not really a big issue. So it, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, that's, it's only half the distance of mm-hmm. a climb that I've done many, many times in my life. It doesn't look close in terms of close, close, but it looks like very attainable. Yeah. It's not, I mean, Everest is this thing I've dreamed about as a kid my whole life and thought about and whatever. And you're like, oh, I'm standing in a place where I can actually just like see the top, like it's there. And then to be realized that there's no way that but I'm, I'm going to sure get a that, chance to go. That drives a lot of bad decisions totally, for people too. Totally. Well, I think that's the biggest thing is that when you try to put that into the framework like I just did by comparing it to something that I've done a bunch of times, it's a very unfair comparison because when you're at that altitude, even using supplemental oxygen like I was, 
you're taking, you know, one step and you're taking a few breaths and then you're taking another step and that's moving fast. If you're really slowing down, you're taking one step, waiting a minute before you're taking your next step. So nothing's close, you know, when you're walking. I think there's one funny clip uh, that I saw. I don't know if we've posted it anywhere, but it was me uh, approaching camp three. So this is still only at only at, you know, 24,000 feet rather than the summits, 29,000 feet. And in the photo, I'm literally look like I'm about to walk into the tents that are right there. And I say in the clip, I'm like, those tents may look close, but it's going to take me a good 10 or 15 minutes to get there. And it'd be the equivalent of like walking across your living room, but like you're moving slow, like re- like it's hard to realize how slow slow is until you're up that high. So when the weather turned and you were told it was a no-go, did you still camp there that night or did you just immediately start going back? Yeah, so we had that discussion. Pasang Bodhi and I had that discussion and the truth was it was about to get dark. The Lhotse face can be a pretty dangerous place. We'd already pushed super hard to go from camp two to camp four, so we were tired and it made sense even though we knew we were going down to you know, hunker down in our tent, basically just get abused with the wind slapping away at the nylon um, and then, you know, wake up the next morning early and get out of there. So that's mm-hmm. what we did. We spent the night there um, on bottled oxygen overnight and then descended. So the disappointment for me had to so much to do with usually you go to camp four, that's your summit attempt. You either make the summit, you don't make the summit and that's over for a number of reasons, you know, obviously fatigue, you know, being up that high is really hard in the body. I mean, they call it the death zone for a reason. Like Mm -hmm. your body is not meant to be up that high. And then there's the whole logistics of, well, you just use some of your bottled oxygen. And that's part of the reason why Everest is very expensive is the logistics of literally carrying these things up there and how do you get them there and all this sort of stuff. So you've kind of burned a bit of your fuel, both, you know, in your body as well as the actual fuel and the oxygen that's going to, you know, get you to the summit. And so going back down that day, there was a lot of doubt, like, is this it? Am I going to somehow figure out logistically, you know, financially and more than anything, physically a way to, you know, make another shot at the summit? So how do you make that decision? I mean, did you have enough, obviously you had enough bottled oxygen or did you have to have more brought up or how did that work? What ended up happening is uh, I was using uh, Adventure Consultants, which is one of the sort of predominant guiding companies uh, in the world. Um, They were actually, if you've seen the Everest movie, it was the guiding company, you know, in that story, which is a tragedy. Immediately when I started thinking, (laughs) he said that. Um, But... uh, Guy Cotter, who bought the company after that accident in 1996, is is a good friend of mine, um, incredibly you know famous climber and just a, a great guy all around. Um, he uh, basically said, you know, I know you need logistics on this mountain. There's no way you don't climb Everest by yourself, and you don't like I said I was climbing with one other Sherpa, but you don't even climb Everest with just you know one Sherpa. There's so much more that goes into it from the logistics of literally getting in Nepal and being on a climbing permit, which is not an easy thing to secure, to having a base camp cook and a chef and making sure food is carried up and all this other stuff. There's a lot of other people working in the background to make a summit attempt happen. Um, unfortunately, um, so they have their large main guided group. Um, and ultimately they got four of those people to the summit, all the people who were able to attempt the summit, but their group started out at eight and progressively over the climb, over the duration of two months being there, a series of things happened to some of those other climbers and they had to be evacuated from Mm. just sickness or fatigue or whatnot. And so there was 
in our group in excess um, store of oxygen, essentially, gotcha. which again is to the detriment of those who unfortunately didn't make it to the summit, but was a benefit for me because right. had all those people been healthy and in place and ready to go, there literally would not have been enough oxygen for me to make a second attempt. So there were a couple fatalities uh, during this window. Did you get to know any of these people that ended up unfortunately passing away no um i did not um i my my closest uh touch to that was when i was climbing in nepal training for everest a guy who i knew did pass away on that climb um which was definitely my first sort of touch with that in my climbing career um and definitely you know emphasize how how serious it can be out there um but on my actual summit day so you know a few Two days, three days later, another weather window opened up. I was down at camp two trying to recover. I was exhausted, but figured, hey, they're giving me another shot. They're saying there's enough oxygen in place. I got to give this one more go. Mm-hmm. You know, I put my whole life into this project and really eager to complete it. That's another so, one of those decisions that could be fatal. Totally. And, you know, Jenna and I had some long conversations about that. She's like, are you really ready? Like, are you, I mean, are you really physically able to do this? Because so many people use all their energy going up to the summit. Um, but as a, a, a famous guide in the Himalaya, Russell Price often says is that the summit is really only halfway. You know, you got to get yourself all the way back down until you can really call that a successful expedition. Um, and so, you know, I really checked in with myself to see if I was, I was ready, willing and able uh, to take that, you know, take that on. And uh, I did, you know, I got back up to camp four again, actually got Again, caught, caught in a little windstorm halfway up, had to kind of delay a day and then get to Camp 4 um, and eventually make it to the summit. We can talk about that in, in more color in a second. But, you know, two people on the same day that I summited, uh, unfortunately, did lose their lives mm-hmm. on the descent uh, due to high altitude sickness. And, you know, I didn't know them um, and didn't really encounter them while I was climbing, didn't realize that was happening. But to, to come down on the backside of that um, when you're, you know, excited and wanting to celebrate, you know, your personal success and realize that there was people out there in the same day in the exact same conditions that I was that lost their lives on that day really puts the, the whole sort of risk of it all into perspective. Yeah, it's so intense. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, so you don't find that information out obviously until you get back down to whatever camp, right? Probably right. four, but like, three yeah, camp. Two. So I went to camp. A lot of people go to camp four on the descent. Um, I went to camp four, but it's also camp four is known for people having had summited coming back, going to sleep and never waking up again. You know, you're still at 26,000 feet at camp mm-hmm. four. And although you feel like you're back in the safety of a camp, you know, you're still up high. You're still on bottled oxygen if you're staying there. And so I said to myself, I basically sat in my tent for a couple hours, called home to Jenna actually. And I was like, I am so tired right now, but I'm going to summon the energy to get myself down the load seat face back to camp two, where I can take off this oxygen mask and be at the relative lower altitude of 21,000 feet. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, I left for the summit at 11 PM and it wasn't until about 7 PM the following day that I was back down at camp two. So wow. an incredibly long day. But for me, I'm fortunate that I did that. Not that I was showing any signs of, you know, slipping into, you know, the death or anything, you know, bad happening to me. But it is in Camp 4 that night when the mm-hmm. people did pass away. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so the actual summit day, uh, the weather cleared. You had decent weather to get up there. Did you, did you have like, um, trouble with the, you know, the final stage, the final the last? Yeah. Yes and no. You know, the weather actually wasn't calling for great conditions that day. Um, 
it was good enough that a lot of people were in position, but because there had been these delays, like my first thwarted attempt and whatever, there was about 200 people uh, trying to summit that day, which is crazy. I mean, wow. that's like- 200 people? Yeah. So it's like a, it's literally like a the whole mountain jam going basically. up and down the mountain. Yeah, it's crazy. And there's one rope, um, and that day turned out to be by far the biggest summit day that had happened on Everest in many, many years. You know, like I said, I think it was 120 Sherpas and 80, you know, Western climbers summited oh that day. Uh, so, you know, the numbers might be yeah, exact, You wouldn't imagine that. that. You just think it's you and the Sherpa and there's no one else around. And know. that's how it would have been had I made the first summit attempt. There was only a couple mm -hmm. teams into position because, but then after sort of these progressive delays, a number of teams kind of caught up or got, had been delayed, you know, it kind of everyone ended up there on that day. And the truth was the weather was calling that night for, you know, minus, you know, I think it was minus 30 ambient temperature, but with 30, 40 mile per hour gusts, which takes the wind chill to somewhere like ridiculous, negative 60 or negative 70 or something like that. And that's, you know, that's a scary amount of cold, um, especially when you're up at really high altitude. What keeps you warm is oxygen. And so the lack of oxygen not only make, you know, minus 40, minus 50, minus 60 is like unfathomably cold no matter what. But then, you know, add the fact that your body's also suffering to stay warm because of the lack of oxygen. That's like ridiculously cold. Mm -hmm. And so there was, I actually called Jenna from Camp 4 because we just kind of kept checking in with one another. Um, and she was really my rock through this whole time. And I said to her, I said, you know, I'm scared. Like I'm, I'm really scared to go up there um, because I think people are probably going to die today, but if not, you know, not be so fatalistic, people are definitely going to get frostbite in these conditions. And I've been really hurt before, you know, you mentioned not, you know, not knowing if I'd ever be able to walk again normally and like losing a toe, losing a finger. I mean, you hear people out there go, Oh, it'd be worth it to me to get to the summit if I lost a pinky. And I, I mean, to me, I'm just like, that's crazy. Like I'm not trying to like injure myself permanently. And so just that fear, you know, it builds up in your mind. And to Jenna's credit, she'll admit now that she was probably more scared than even I was. And certainly her and my mom sitting there, you know, taking this phone call were incredibly scared, but she was, in, she was amazing. You know, she told me what I needed to hear in that moment was she said, Colin, people are going to summit Mount Everest today. You have trained so hard for this. You have put so much time and energy into this. There's no reason you can't be one of those people today. Mm -hmm. Go out there and, you know, achieve your dreams. Yeah, it takes a strong person to say that. Absolutely. When I, I know in all truth, what she wanted was to say, people are going to get hurt out there today. People are going to die out there today. Like, go what down. What do you, yeah. Why are you there? Like, get out of there, mm -hmm. you know? And so it's, I, you and know. And yet had something happened to you, you know, right. for her to have to live with that, that right. final push. Right. So it was a, a very intense summit day um, to, to give some some levity to the situation. I'll, I'll tell this story, which is um, I'm climbing pretty well the first half of the day. Um, I actually left at 11 p.m., which I know now is in, in back in the day, not that long ago, is, is on the earlier side of things. But these days, there's all this cat and mouse game when it gets crowded up there of, well, I'm going to go earlier. Well, I'm going to go earlier. Well, I'm going to go earlier. People started leaving for the summit 6 p.m., 7 p.m. The sun hasn't even come down yet. And I'm thinking, if it's going to be that cold, the last place I want to be is on the summit at 2 a.m. when, mm -hmm. A, I don't even get to see this epic view that I've, I think, earned. But it's just going to be so cold. And so... 
uh, Pasang Bodhi and I elected to leave at 11 p.m. And I guess sticking with the theme of being the last person arrived at base camp, I was also the very last person of 200 people to leave mm. Camp 4 for the summit. And so we look up and there's just a stream of headlamps in front of us. And so we make the decision um, about halfway up the route, you know, 1,500 feet or so, 8,400 meters is a, a place called the balcony. Up until that, fa- up until there, it's a large snow slope. It's fairly steep, um, but given the snow conditions, we felt comfortable climbing pretty much not being connected to the rope. Um, and so we, the benefit of doing that, of course, is you're not stuck in this traffic jam. So we sort of walked beside the traffic jam and passed what I would estimate to be a hundred or so climbers, um, up to that point. So we at least got ourselves back into the sort of middle of the pack, if you will. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's so insane. It's crazy. I mean, it's literally the last place you'd think you'd find a traffic jam, but that's the reality up there. Um, but beyond the balcony, it actually gets pretty steep, pretty exposed, um, on, you know, on right and left side. So sort of going around the standard route becomes very dangerous. Mm-hmm. We had been moving so quickly, and that's a relative term, so quickly, but quicker than the other people out there and not stuck in this traffic jam the first half that I actually wasn't even wearing my warmest jacket at this point. I elected to wear sort of a two-piece down suit. A lot of people have seen photos of people wearing one-piece down suit, which is a little more common, but the two-piece gives you a little more versatility. Um, and finally we get to a section where we're behind, uh, we realize we're stuck in this traffic jam. We're clipped onto the rope and we're not unclipping until we get to the summit. Basically really hard to pass in this, in the next, you know, few hours. Mm-hmm. And I'm at a standstill. It's four, it's 4 AM. It's the kind of the darkest, coldest hour of the day. The wind's starting to kick up. And I think, man, I better like put on my warmest jacket now and kind of settle into this pace. And once you stop moving, of course you start getting a lot colder. Mm-hmm. So I take my gloves off to put on my biggest jacket and I look down and my right hand is completely black. Like oh, no way. Black. Black is black. But you didn't you weren't even aware? Was completely unaware of the situation and I'm like going, "Oh my god, like maybe it's the oxygen is like so like I'm feeling like I'm fit, but clearly I'm not realizing how cold it is out here. I'm not in touch with my body and my senses, which is like a really weird feeling for me. I'm nearing 28,000, you know, 27,500 feet at this point. I'm way higher than I've ever been. And I'm just going, what's going on here? And I freak out and I look down and this isn't like a little bit of frost, but I'm thinking like my right hand is gone, like gone. Like I will be losing this hand for sure. And all the emotions go through me, um, you know, is Jenna going to still love me when I get down here from here? You know, what are people going to think? Like, oh my gosh. And strangely, and also the weird psychology of all of this, I've got foot warmers in my boots, uh, electric foot warmers, and uh, they actually get quite hot. But I think, well, I'm not, I can't look at my toes, but if my hands look like this, what do my feet look like? Mm-hmm. So I turn those up to the absolute maximum level thinking, well, I'm at least not going to lose my toes if I'm going to lose my hand. And so I actually continue upward. Um, Are you able to use your hand? Is it functioning? So that's the weird thing is that my hand is working like perfectly fine. But when I was severely burned in Thailand, it was mostly my legs. After I was in the hospital for 24 hours, I didn't take a single step for three months, basically. Not even just to walk to, you know, the bathroom one step away from my hospital bed. And so I think to myself, but I walked into the hospital when I was burned. Mm -hmm. And so I think to myself, maybe it's the same. There's just like the adrenaline's going 24 hours. My hand's going to work so I can maybe get up and down the mountain. But after that, like my hand's frozen off, it's gone. And so I'm really scared at this point, obviously. Um, but maybe it tells you something about the crazy psychology in my mind. I say, well, at least I'm going to get the summit out of this. If I'm going to lose my hand, it'd be, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to have to go home with no hand 
and no summit would be even worse than going home with no hand. I've already lost it, you know? So I keep going for a little while longer and I'm obviously kind of spiraling into a very negative headspace of just kind of that depression, trying to assimilate this into my consciousness as well as continue to climb up this ridiculously hard mountain. And the sun finally comes up. It's maybe 6 a.m. now and I have to change a few things around and I think I'm actually switching an oxygen bottle or something where I actually need the dexterity in my hands because the mittens you're wearing are just kind of big mittens. You can't do a whole lot with them. So I take off my glove for the second time of the day. And I've been out there for maybe six or seven hours at this point. I left at 11 a.m., so yeah, 6 a.m., seven hours probably. And I look down and I start hysterically laughing because I realize that my hand warmer inside of my glove has broken open and those are filled with charcoal charcoal and copper filings that have basically dyed my hand black. Oh my God. And so, what like a total mind fuck. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. So I'm going, how oh, my hands back, my uh-huh. hands back. I'm going to be fine. And uh, that was, you know, about only uh, 30 minutes or so below the summit. So I kind of have this kind of come out of this like dark place, emotional upswing mm-hmm. of realizing I haven't frozen off my hand. Did, when, when you first saw it and it was black, did you show your Sherpa? Crazy enough, I didn't show it to Pisang. Um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is I didn't want to turn around. And the other was he was an incredibly strong climber, like just an amazing climber. Him and I got on extremely well. Like I couldn't have asked for a better partner, but there is a little bit of a language barrier, a little bit of a cultural difference. Neither of our minds are working great at that altitude anyways. It's dark. Like it's weird to say this, but like the communication at that level, even with a partner who would be of the same culture as you is pretty hard. Like the wind's blowing, mm-hmm. you've got this oxygen mask on. Like it's not an easy, it's not just like, hey, let's have like a conversation and like talk through the pros and cons of this, like what you would do in a sort right. of normal circumstance. So yeah, he had no idea. So when I was like fist pumping, like my hand is back, he's like looking at me like, what What's the hell is this you? crazy? Yeah, yeah. We're not there yet. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So what is the elation like when you reach the summit? How long do you hang out up there? Like, what is, what is that all about? Yeah, you know, I was on the summit of Everest um, for, I think, 30 or 45 minutes, oh, which is, which is a long yeah, amount of time. I kind of thought one minute would be cool with like a, a selfie or something. And um, right as we got to the summit, believe it or not, the wind died down a little bit. The sun was out. You know, I was happy to not be up there at... 2.30 in the morning, I actually, a couple of days later, met a guy, the first guy who summited on the day, and he had was in the hospital in Kathmandu with severe frostbite on his toes because he got there up in the dark mm-hmm. and tried to wait around for the sunrise, and, you know, you just can't mm-hmm. be up there that long. But it was pretty nice when I was up there. I was able to, you know, get my GoPro it out. Actually, my GoPro clip, I'm not sure I've posted it yet, but it's pretty hilarious if I pull it out and I go, I'm on the summit of... <gasps> And I literally have to pull my oxygen mask back up to be like, okay, let me try that again. I'm on the summit of Everest because I literally, it was like that little, I try to pull my mask off and there's just no air up there. Um, and, uh, but it was just an incredible feeling to be up there, you know, really just, uh, something I've dreamed about my entire life, a really special moment. And, uh, 
you know, something I definitely won't forget. And uh, you know, going back to the social media conversation, I did manage to, uh, what I'm told is the very first Snapchat from the actual summit of Everest. Right. So uh, that so was you that always was have cool. that yeah. very first. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I've got that two world records Evan doesn't Spiegel, matter, but I'm still the first Snapchatter no matter what. Evan from Snapchat should have reached out to you after that. <laughs> That's like a landmark thing. You yeah, know, you actually like broadcast, uh, you know, a video clip from the summit. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So that was super cool. But that just also goes to show um, the way it was up there. I mean, to yeah. get your iPhone out and you obviously need your direct skin contact to use, to use right. it. Um, you got to keep all your electronics basically in your inner layers to uh, stay warm, uh, to keep the batteries warm. But, you know, I was able to pull it out and take my glove off for the seven seconds or so that of mm-hmm. the clip I took. And yeah, I mean, it, it was cold and intense, but I actually was fortunate enough to really enjoy the summit. Yeah, that's amazing, man. You know, I had a uh I had this guy Wim Hof on the podcast recently. Do you know this guy? I'm familiar with it. Yeah, Yeah. incredible. So this dude, apparently, uh, he didn't summit Everest, but he climbed up to the death zone in just his shorts and no like, shirt. So it's, it's after hearing what you're, like, <laughs> like, and he's I, like, oh, Everest is no big deal. Like he's sort of like passing it off. Like right. it's just not that big of a challenge. Yeah. He, he didn't go all the way to the summit, but still he was, I mean, how high is the death, the death zone? 26,000. So it's camp, camp four. four. It's where I'm talking so about. So he went to camp yeah. four in his shorts. Yeah. It must've been a really nice day. Well, like I was saying, day. it can be warm there. It can actually be incredibly warm there. So I can picture that. But uh, even more impressive than that for what he's done, I don't know so much about him, but I do know that he's swum in some extremely cold water. I think yeah. I've seen some video of him swimming underneath like the Arctic Ocean yeah, or like yeah, something so like... 66 meters under a meter of ice yeah. in Finland above the Arctic Circle. There you go. Yeah. Like I've, uh, That is insane to me because, I mean, you're a swimmer. I have a swimming background. And even to this day, after the thousands of times I've jumped into pools and lakes and things, like I do not like that first like no. cold feeling. Nobody and does. so like... <laughs> to be the guy that like takes that to such an extreme, like my hat's off. That's on a whole nother, yeah, another yeah. level. Well, it puts it into perspective after hearing your story for sure. Yeah. You could do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So, so of all of the, you know, the, you know, the seven summits, the two poles was Everest. I know I want to talk about Mount Elbrus cause you had some difficulty there, yeah. too, but was Everest the biggest challenge or were there other places you found to be more difficult? What was the lowest moment? Yeah, I think that Everest, if you if you compartmentalized each one of the expeditions into their own expedition, um, it would be hard to not call Everest the toughest, particularly in the context of arriving so late, having to rush my acclimatization, and just being the there. accumulated fatigue, accumulated though, fatigue, six months of right, five months of you know running around doing this. Totally. Stuff. So it's towards the end. I'm shattered. It was it was uh, tough. You know, one of the lower moments of the whole project actually came after the Everest summit day. Um, and, uh, bless her heart. I called Jenna. Of course, there's a lot of, a lot of, I called Jenna, I called Jenna's in this story, but you, uh-huh. you can tell she really was, was my rock through all where this. Where is Je- I mean, Jenna's where? In Jenna's Portland? in Portland at this time. Uh, she came a couple times throughout the course of the project. She came to, she um, Australia with, you, right? with me and did, uh, Kosciuszko, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a small hill. She's actually climbed some pretty serious mountains in her day. We got engaged at 19,000 feet in Ecuador on the top of a big mountain over there in the of Andes. So <laughs> that was a couple years ago. Um, but uh, she, um, I you know I called her 
and she's running all the logistics of this thing. You know, she's literally the one that's going like, and it's not simple logistics. We're talking about planes landing on ice. We're talking about, you know, going to Antarctica, one of the most remotest places in the world. We're talking about, you know, helicopters from West Papua, Indonesia. I mean, the logistics are not, you know, your flight leaves yeah, at this like, time. Who do you even call? Yeah, like, it took a year in trying to figure out all this stuff, how to do that. But I call her from Camp 2 on Everest to say, hey, I'm safe, I'm back, all this good stuff. And she immediately says, well, congratulations, that's awesome. Well, this other world record is now in play. If you basically can get your butt on a plane to Alaska, you know, tomorrow. Right. <laughs> um, Were you even aware of the other world record? Kind of a little bit, like seven peripherally, the Seven mm-hmm. Summits record, but it definitely wasn't what I set out to do. Um, and it wasn't until I was done with Everest that I could even look past Everest. And so it was almost like a, they'd been tracking on it more at home. And she's like, it's May 19th. And if you can summon Denali by May 30th, like you will have set this record. And there's a lot of people that would argue that the Seven Summits record, because it's been attempted and held by, you know, various prestigious mountaineers over the years is, you know, an even more coveted record than the Explorer's Grand Slam. So um, was like, hey, I got it. And the guy who currently held the record before me, I know him. And I actually had met him at the South Pole at the very beginning of this project. And he had said to me, he's a 65-year-old guy. His name's Vern Teos, has climbed seven summits more than anyone else, 10 Everest summits, 55 Denali's. I mean, just a legend, legend guy. And he actually said to me, I think you have a shot at my record. He said it right at the beginning. And I said, nah. Like, I was like, nah, nah, I'm doing the poles and there's no way. And the time frame doesn't kind of work. Um, it's kind of like breaking the hundred free world record on your way to breaking the world record for the 200 free. Exactly. Exactly. Like yeah. That never happens. Right. Yeah. So it was amazing. We said that, but so I call home, you know, here we are after this day I just described, I calm down the emotions, the highs, the lows, the summiting, thinking I freeze my hand off the, you know, the, the second summit attempt, all these things happen. I get back down fine in my tent in camp too. It's the first time I've kind of let my guard down, even though you're not totally off the mountain. I'm like, I did it. Like I summited Everest today. Mm-hmm. And I called Jenna and she's like, awesome job. So like I said, if you can get on this helicopter that's leaving from base camp, get you to Kathmandu, we could fly you, you know, via Dubai, Seattle to Anchorage and get you to the, you know, on a bush plane that would drop you off from the, the base <laughs> of Denali. You know, this other record might be in play. And I'm like, Jenna, I love you, sweetheart. But it literally just took me one hour to take my boots off in my tent right now. Mm. That's how tired I am. Like, Climbing another mountain tomorrow on, on the plane. other side of the world. It's yeah, she's like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of one of those. So it was uh, a little bit of a tough love moment. But uh, God, thanks. I'm thankful that she did that. Um, you know, I needed a little kick in the pants and the extra motivation. But um, yeah, I think that was those were some of the lower moments of this project, which are now in totality. I'm incredibly proud of what I've accomplished. Um, but there were moments in this project that I'd finish a summit or I'd get down from somewhere, you know, Everest certainly is, you know, pretty iconic and epic, but even many of the other summits that were super important to me where I wanted to just kind of breathe in that experience for a second, you know, go, Hey, I just climbed the tallest mountain in Europe. Like what a cool life experience. Or like I was standing at the North pole today, but instead it's like, yeah, you were standing at the North pole today. Now you got to get on a flight and fly here and go to Everest. And before I know it, like I'm just switched on and into this. So it was right. Like the whole purpose of doing it is at odds with the other purpose, totally the greater purpose. Right. So the reason that you, that the, the thing that compels people towards these challenges is the ability to, you know, 
be in the moment of that experience, right? And yeah. you're sort of deprived of that to yeah. chase the greater goal. And definitely deprived of the um, moment. You know, I was happy in the moment every time I made a summit or came back down safely or whatever, but immediately it was the planning for the right. next one or the right. next one, the next one. And so you know, those were also some of the lows was right after some of the achievements, you Mm -hmm. know, along the way it was like, okay, but you're actually not really done, which is what I signed up for and what I've always wanted to do. And it's amazing in totality, but there were a few moments where I was like, can I just drink this one in for a second? Um, so so does the, does the fatigue accumulate to such an extent that by the time you're at Denali, it's, it's a trudge or does something like Denali seem simplistic is the wrong word, but you know, more, kind of eminently doable in the wake of just having climbed Everest. Like the, the, the comparison, you right. know, the, the, that, that like sense of relativity where for other people, or maybe even you had it been an isolated event to climb Denali is a big thing. But totally. given what had just occurred, you're like, okay, I'm just going to go bang out this last thing. Yeah. You know, Denali is a serious mountain. It's not as if I had to do Everest and then finish with Kilimanjaro, not to diminish Kilimanjaro, but like there's not a lot of objective hazard on that mountain. There's not snow, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, but Denali is a serious mountain. You know, people die on Denali frequently just as much as people die on Everest. Like there's serious weather there. There's serious glacier. There's a, uh, you know, arguably more objective hazard than there is mm. on Everest because there's not a fixed rope the whole route. You know, all of these things. Like Denali is a very serious mountain. The so one- then for you, the challenge is you got to get your head back in the game totally. and, and not take it for granted and not think that it's going to be a cakewalk. Totally. So, you know, Denali is, you know, a serious mountain and, you know, we're on a really limited time frame at this point. So Denali, usually people were there for, you know, three weeks is like a reasonable amount of time to think you could climb Denali. And even then the summit success rate is usually something like 20, 30, 40%, certainly less than, well, less than 50% on Denali, um, which has to do with, you know, just weather and it's a tough mountain and it's super cold. It can be a lot colder than Everest there, even though it's lower, but 20,000 foot mountain is still a (laughs) 20,000 foot mountain. Like it's no joke, you know? And thankfully, on this final mountain, I was climbing with one of my dear childhood friends, a guy named Tucker Cunningham, another friend of ours named Drew Pogi, and they went over to Denali um, while I was still on Everest. And because we knew that we, even not with the Seven Summits record, but just with the overall record that I was going to be coming from Everest acclimatized and ready to go up the mountain, mm-hmm. weather permitting, and if they were going to be able to climb with me they needed to go and pre-acclimatize. So they had been on the mountain for about seven, eight days, maybe could have been even 10 days by the time I got there. Um, and, you know, they had actually established a couple of camps higher on the mountain, which of course made it a bit easier for me. But we still arrive, you know, you get to the glacier, the way Denali works is you actually, there's no road to the, you know, where you start the trailhead or something like that. You actually have to take a bush plane in that flies you to the base of the mountain on the Kilhutna Glacier. And you start at about 7,000 feet. And there's, again, just like Everest, there's progressive camps higher. Hmm. And so uh, Drew stayed up at our 14,000 foot camp to kind of hold down the fort. And Tucker came down and met me. And we uh, put on skis and skinned uh, uphill um, up to 14,000. We spent one night getting there and then got to 14,000, where it was basically our base camp, more or less. And then we immediately get there and just get like lit up by a storm, just absolutely hammered. And (laughs) I'm so tired that, so we've got, uh, at this point we have two tents. There's one kind of really small, 
technically a two person tent, but more like a one person tent that I'm going to sleep in. And they've had their tent there for a while. That's a, a three man tent that they're kind of settled into. And in Alaska, you got to, you know, dig wind walls and kind of have mm-hmm. a whole situation mm-hmm. set up around it. So first night we get there, this huge storm blows in and I say, Hey guys, like I'm pretty tired, like whatever. And it's like 1 PM the following day. And my tent is completely buried. Like the tent poles are bending. Like the oh, snow wow. is like touching my face and they're finally like, Colin, Colin, are you in there? And I was like, oh yeah, what? Why? And they're like, you've been asleep for 15 hours. You're like <laughs> buried. Like the wind has been like howling and like, how could you possibly be asleep? And then I'm like, what? Oh yeah, man, guys, I've been asleep this whole time. Like, just like, that's how tired I was. Like, I mean, I was in a huge snowstorm getting dumped on and like in basically a little coffin of a tent. Mm-hmm. And I was still just like, uh, I'm so tired. Like, right. so, it doesn't matter. Let but, me sleep. <laughs> so does the weather clear? And you, how long are you up there before you can make your summit attempt? So we're up there a couple of days and it's like that for a couple of days. And I mostly spend the time sleeping and just trying to get that little bit of recovery. I mean, I was really exhausted from Everest and wasn't coming back. Um, you know, I'd been of all the climbing partnerships that I had throughout this project, I was, you know, often the strongest person if certainly of an equal of anyone I climbed with. Um, and I was clearly not the strongest person out there. And I had, you know, I said to both of them, I said, Hey guys, like I'm not my full self. I'm not on full steam. I'm going to, you know, not need your help in terms of like actually carrying me up this mountain, but you got to understand where I'm at right now. And we got to be cognizant of that, you know, to make safe choices. Um, but the seven summit record was looming over our heads. And so we looked at the weather forecast and it didn't look like the weather was getting any better before the sort of time was expiring Mm -hmm. on the additional world record. And so the sort of day of reckoning came and we said, well, the record expires in two days. The next day is definitely like horrible, horrible, but today's like kind of horrible. Let's see if we could like give it a go. And so another potentially fatalistic decision. Totally, totally. Um, and any of these decisions that I've described in this podcast, I mean, you could yeah, look back if they'd gone the wrong way. You're not you look, making that decision based on an objective uh, analysis of the weather and safety. You're doing it based on a ticking clock. Totally. And I, I, I had this conversation with my family before I left. Um, as supportive as they are, of course, they had a reasonable amount of you know trepidation before I left. And I said hey, I promise that I'm going to make decisions on this trip in a vacuum, the same way I would if I were climbing just in a day with, you know, a buddy to try to get to the summit, but, you know, always making, I've turned around on tons of mountains in my life, tons, you know, I've not summited objectives like plenty because of way lesser weather than I was facing. And the truth is, I'll be the first to admit, like, broke that rule. I definitely broke that promise for sure. You broke that promise a lot. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's nice to sit here with a smile on my face and say, oh, it worked out. But that is, I mean, you're absolutely right. That's when you do make some wrong decisions and it, mm-hmm. it can go wrong. But um, so much so that our partner, uh, Drew Pogi, who's an incredibly strong guy, um, said, hey, guys, like, I, it's not for me today. Like, he's mm-hmm. like, he's a great skier and that's what he loves to do. And you're probably familiar with the, the type one, type two fun. He's like, I'm kind of a type one guy. Mm-hmm. I want to ski down this mountain. There's no skiing that's happening. It's 50, 60 mile per hour winds. Like that's, that's just off the books, not happening. And he's like walking up there and that for the next 12 hours is just like not safe. And I, I'm, I'm not going. Mm-hmm. And so to his credit, actually, and I said this to him afterwards, I said, you know, you probably, I mean, 
yeah, we summited, we, it worked out for us, but like, you know, he probably did make, I mean, he made the right decision. Mm -hmm. I will, I will say in, in terms of, but he didn't try to talk you out of it. And you know, so we made a plan. So Tucker and I made a plan and we said, let's leave camp. Let's check in with each other every, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes. Just, we were mostly worried about our fingers and toes because it was, it was ambient temperature, minus 30, minus 40, wind chills up in the minus 60, minus 70 range. Um, So we were really worried about, you know, cold fingers and toes. Um, And then just kind of checking with the safety along the way, you know, we were leaving camp um, and you normally, uh, Denali has climbed from 17,000 feet, but there was no way we were going to be able to survive a night in up higher from where mm-hmm. we were. And so we decided to actually go from the summit from 14,000 feet, which makes the summit day twice as long as it right. normally is in adverse conditions. And so we're walking out of 14 camp on the day and Denali's actually this time of year, quite a crowded mountain, not nowhere near like Everest, but there's a fair few people trying to, you know, finish the seven summits or just climb Denali. It's just on a very iconic mountain, you know, tallest mountain in North America. And so there's probably, by my estimation, at least 50, maybe a hundred people in camp 14 camp when we're there mm. and we're walking out of camp. No one's going up the mountain. No one's going down the mountain. A couple of people unzip like the crack of their tent in this like 50 mile per hour winds. It was like, where are you guys going? And we're like, we're going to try this summit. And they're like literally laughing at us. Like get back in your tent. Like oh, you're, you're, you guys are messing around. And we're like, no, we're going to see how we go. Um, we actually in the first little bit, you know, got, you know, kind of, blown so hard that kind of down on hands and knees kind of knocked down on hands and knees putting an ice axe into the snow and waiting for the gust to pass and then walking a little further and doing the same thing so um it was pretty it was a really really brutal day um for sure and uh, did the 100 people at base camp fourteen thousand foot base camp know that you were on the precipice of breaking this record or were you just an anonymous climber to everybody um there was a little bit of both there's interesting wrinkle in this whole story which is by a complete coincidence Vern Tejas, whose record I eventually did break, was in 14 camp on this oh, day. Wow. And so I had seen him the day before. And like I said, we'd, we'd met each other at the South Pole when this whole thing started. And he was like, you going to go for it? Like, kind of like, he was kind of like, not looking like great weather next couple of days. He's but comp- he knew there was, you got two days. But he knew. Oh, he yeah. absolutely knew. And so that was uh, an interesting thing. And uh, to the amazing credit of him, he was the first person I saw when I returned, you know, many hours later that oh day successful. Oh my God, you can't script that. And that he, would, if, if that was in a movie, <laughs> you'd be like, that's a false note. That's ridiculous. Yeah, that yeah. would never happen. Yeah. And so, and uh, for me, he's someone I've always looked up to. I mean, he's just a legend, like I said. So to, so to you know, have take a record that he had is just, uh, I'm humbled by that. And he couldn't have been more graceful in it, just giving me a big hug and congratulating me on the achievement. And so that was just to finish the project with that, you know, sort of that whole Right, other than there. your buddy, to see him as the first guy. Totally, right. oh, totally. Incredible. So... So one of the things that was special, though, is we were alone on the mountain all day. I mean, you know, usually you're climbing up there. There's other people up there. Um, and we just had the mountain to ourselves because no one was stupid enough to leave their tents um, mm-hmm. other than us. Um, and it was a crazy summit day. I mean, I, I describe it as the wheels were really starting to fall off the bus. Like I was shattered, tired. If it hadn't been for Tucker, who was incredibly strong. I actually a Stanford swimmer. Mm. Um, oh, really? So he's you got that. What year? So you're uh, about your he's age? He's one year older than me in school. Uh-huh. So he'd have been like 2005 from college interesting um so uh contemporary of i don't know like a jamie kramer and matt mcdonald i don't know if you know like that era of guy yeah those names sound familiar to me yeah some of those guys you know trials you guys marcus rogan you know that that sort of era Yeah, Yeah. yeah that era of guys um 
yeah, hard to not know who he is. Interesting. Um, well, I'm sure you have, you know, 8 million stories <laughs> like this for every single one of the expeditions. And we, you know, it would be a 45 hour podcast yeah, to yeah. go through all of that episodically. Um, but I am interested in what happened on, on it's Elbrus, right? Yeah. Mount Elbrus. Yeah where like your Sherpa basically abandoned you? Like what happened? Yeah, so I just, first of all, I want to just shout out to everyone out there that <laughs> no. Rich is really pulling out the Colin looks like a knucklehead making bad dangerous oh, no. decision stories here. <laughs> I'm trying to hit the dramatic notes here. <laughs> but we're really hitting the dramatic notes. No, in truth, these are the I most mean, dramatic let me just, moments Let me just say foundationally though, that it is kind of a beautiful thing that you complete this crazy adventure on Denali and that you really had to work for it. Like if it had been a super nice day and it was like a breeze up there and it had been totally mellow, it almost doesn't seem right. Like the oh. fact that you really were, the, the wheels were falling off the wagon and you were down on hands and knees and it was not a good day and probably not a good idea to do it. And the fact that you persevered through that, maybe not the smartest thing you ever did, but the fact that you made it and came out the other side, there's, there's some poetry in that. And then to be able to have have you know the, the guy whose record you broke standing right there like this is that's 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 quite something yeah it's incredible and you know it, it was uh definitely going through my mind those last couple hours up to Nali. i mean it wasn't really till we were on the summit ridge that we both believed we were going to be on that summit because it just kept being like should we turn around now should we i mean we asked ourselves that a hundred times that day from just how bad the conditions were uh the one thing to our advantage was the sun was out so we weren't in like a white out snowstorm it was just so much wind mm. um but you know we get to the bottom of what's called pig hill which is kind of the last big hill before you're on the summit you're at you know 19,700 feet at this point something like that and tucker starts fist pumping and he's in front of me and i literally the only thing going through my mind is how does he have enough energy to fist pump right now like i'm i'm that on mm. on the last step so it's like you said you know it was going through my mind that whole time which is maybe this is what it takes to truly break a record like this like if it had come easy like it never is going to come easy. You're trying to, you know, do something that's really, you know, never been done before. And, and this certainly is the, the price will, you pay. Yeah, it'll deepen your appreciation for, for sure. it over time. For sure. But yeah, Mount Elbrus. So what happened on Mount Elbrus? So Mount Elbrus is the tallest mountain in Europe. Uh, it's in Russia, um, in the Caucasus. Really, actually, for me, there was a, a lot of... Is Russia in Europe? Yes. So the western what? part of Russia on the other okay. side of the year, the westernmost, the western side of the Ural Mountains counts right. as the European continent. There's all these rules governing this. I didn't make this up. So uh, it's considered Europe. That's so it's considered Europe. Yeah. So of course, if you're on the other side of the Ural Mountains, um, you're considered in the Asian plate. But uh, on on where Mount Elbrus is on the western part of Russia and the, the southwestern part of Russia is considered Europe. So people often mistake the tallest mountain in Europe as uh, Mont Blanc in France, mm. um, but but uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's actually Mount Elbrus, which is a good 4,000 feet taller than Mont Blanc. Um, so 18,500 foot mountain. And Mount Elbrus is pretty much always climbed in summer. So June, July. Um, but for me, and part of the way I was able to break the Explorers Grand Slam record by so much is because the guy whose record I broke climbed Anali and then went to Russia and climbed uh, Mount Elbrus in July. Mm -hmm. And so instead I attempted it in early March, which is, you know, winter in Russia. Comes um, down to schedule. <laughs> you know? The calendar. Yeah. Um, right. So, so nobody, nobody climbs it in winter. People aren't climbing it, you know, in, in November, very, very right? few it's people. Did I did it oh, in March. In yeah, March, sorry. March. Sorry. I did March 10th was when I summited. So we, uh, 
I'm in Karsten's pyramid before that, which is the opposite. It's uh, the only one that's, you know, actually, you know, Kilimanjaro is warm-ish, but there's still a little bit of snow up there. But Karsten's mm-hmm. pyramid is in, uh, this will get you. This is in Indonesia, which is, of course, uh, politically a part of Asia, but it is part of the Austral-Asian continental plate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, exactly. So that is also why you're climbing. That is the tallest part in Australia. Um, but there's controversy. So I actually climbed an eighth summit, which was Kosciuszko in Australia. So anyways, we're getting because it's beyond seven too, but you actually did 10. <laughs> yes, yes, I actually did 10, but that's because in Australia, there's two. There's there's no controversy about what the other six are, but there's a controversy about what defines Australia. So I figured I'd just do Be them both. and do both. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So one of those I did with Jenna and the other is in this sort of rock climbing spire at 16,000 feet in this deep jungles of Indonesia. And so um, we finally get a helicopter pickup from there, from the base camp. Um, and you're in a very, very remote part of the world. You fly over the world's largest uh, copper and gold mine, which is just a crazy thing to see this like ridiculous hole in the ground. Um, really hard to sort of put into words. Um, anyways, we get to this small town of Tamika. Um, my climbing partner who I'm with, we, we look at the weather cause we're both going to go to Russia and we go, Oh no, like the weather's good in Russia tomorrow. And then the next two weeks are predicted for even weather I wouldn't go out in. So we're talking hundred mile per hour winds, two feet of snow per day, like stupid bad storm is coming. Uh, cause our plan was to fly from this mountain, go to Moscow for a couple of days, catch our breath and get ready to climb Mount Elbrus. Mm-hmm. And so again, my lifeline, I call home to Jenna and I say, Hey Jenna, uh, check the weather. It looks like you maybe try to figure out how to get me there today. And so I literally get on a plane from this town, come down from a helicopter plane from Tamika to Bali, Bali to Jakarta, Jakarta to Doha, Doha to Moscow, Moscow to minute five planes and like, whatever, it's ridiculous. The reason that's important is we get to, uh, the base of Mount Elbrus and I say to my partner, I say, you know, We've been traveling for 48 hours straight. We have to leave for that climb in the middle of the night. You start that climb at two o'clock in the morning. Um, it's dark. I don't know the route very well. And it's, you know, we're just shattered and tired. And our plan had just been the two of us to climb it. Like we didn't feel like we needed a guide or any of this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Very, you know, competent enough to climb this mountain, no problem. And just realized, you know what? Like just out of safety, like let's get a local guy here who's climbed this mountain a hundred times and let's, you know, let's just like have another set of eyes, another person here who knows this mountain given like where we're at physically and emotionally. And so uh, we make these arrangements with this, this Russian guy named Sasha and seems like a totally legit guy. He's climbed, you know, like I said, a hundred times a mountain, knows the mountain super well, big, strong, you know, Russian guy. And uh, so we're, you know, as you do with climbing partners, we're dividing up the group gear um, because obviously you have your personal effects and the other stuff that we're all going to use at some point on the mountain and just kind of dividing the weight. And he says, oh, I'll carry the rope, um, which is one of the more heavy, you know, thing pieces of group gear generally. And we're like, okay, great. You carry the rope. I'll carry this. You'll carry that, whatever. So again, we're planning to ski down as much of this mountain as we can on the way down. So again, we strap skins on to walk up the mountain mm-hmm. and it's really cold night um, because it's winter. It's uh, not quite as cold as Everest and Denali was talking about. It's cold, cold enough that you just want to keep moving. You know, you don't want to stand still for long and it's windy. And so no traffic jam, though, no traffic jam. We're out in this just big black abyss, completely, you know, 
alone. And the first part of the mountain is not particularly technical. It's kind of a big, big snow slope um, that starts off and it gets a lot more technical after that. But um, so we're kind of trudging along. Um, I'm in the lead. Uh, my other partner's right behind me. And, you know, I'm Sasha's third. And uh, I look back after about an hour and there's only one headlamp behind me about a good, you know, 15, 20 feet behind me, just out of sort of talking reach. And I look back and I say to my climate partner, I'm like, where, where's, where's Sasha? And she's like, um, what do you mean? She looks back, assuming he's right behind her. And it turns out, uh, there's no headlamp. So at first we freak out cause we're like, oh my God, like does something happen to him? Like, that's so weird, you know, all this sort of stuff. But like, there hasn't been any terrain that would like make you think, there was not like a cliff you could have fallen off of or a crevasse, you know, there's no glacier mm -hmm. there, no crevasse and fall. And we're just like, this is weird. So we wait for a little while longer, but we're getting cold standing there, no sign of him, no sign of him, no sign of him. Turns out he turned around without but saying you anything You couldn't to have us. found that out until later, right? Until you'd completed this or? So we realized he wasn't there we didn't know why, but we realized he wasn't there. So of course we were like worried the whole thing. Like, well, is he hurt? Is he this? Mm -hmm. Like, but then he turned around. It doesn't seem like you could have gotten hurt where we were. So we're assuming he's fine, but thinking he had just like turned around and like left us. Would have been totally fine for us to climb this mountain hadn't it been for the fact that he was carrying our rope. Right. <laughs> so we have this, you know, conversation <laughs> But he together. turns around without telling you, you have no idea, I mean, there must have been a conversation like we got to go back down and just make sure he didn't, you know, basically have a heart attack. Or, totally. You know. you know, we have that conversation, but it just seems like really strange. Like it just doesn't like the things don't add up. There's a hut that we had left from, which is at the top of, um, you start sort of at, at these huts basically. Um, and there's people who caretake the huts. So we actually call back down to the huts and said, Hey, like if you see this guy, like you're, if you got, they have like snowmobiles or snow cats in the lower part of the mountain there, like maybe like, you know, go find out, but he's not here. We don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. All this sort of stuff. Um, so it's just a weird situation. Like we can't figure it out, but it's the middle of the night in Russia. The wind is like blowing in our face. And like, we basically said, well, if we're going up or we're going down, it doesn't matter. But like, we can't stand here any longer. Like standing here is what is like the most dangerous thing to do right now. We're freezing. And so we decide to continue onwards a little bit. Say like, I say, okay, let's try this without a rope. We know we pretty much need a rope. So we're probably not going to go, but let's, you know, continue onwards. And so we go, we go up, uh, a little bit further on the mountain and it's, um, it's, it's fairly icy, uh, on this mountain. And there's a couple other climbers who we had, uh, met and we elected to not do this so that you can actually take a snow cat about a thousand meters or 3000 feet higher than where the traditional starting point is for us. That didn't feel like the integrity of actually climbing the mountain. So we climbed from the hut, but these people, although climbing slower than us at this point were in front of us. We had talked to them, the guide, it was a Russian guide. Oh, I've climbed K2. Oh, I have this, whatever. And they're on a part of the route that we think is not the route. They're on the left. We think it's more to the right, but we're thinking, well, this guy, again, another Russian guide out there with a ton of experience. And we're thinking, well, they know better than we do. And so we follow in their footsteps. We're still far away from them, but we follow in their footsteps and walking in their exact footsteps, I fall waist deep into a crevasse. Oh my God. <laughs> Unroped. You will usually on a rope down a glacier for this exact reason that if you do, heaven forbid, fall into right. a crevasse, your partner can pull you out with a rope. And I'm now in a, I'm waist deep 
thankfully not beyond my waist, but in this slot little crevasse, have to take my eye socks out, anchor myself, pull myself out. And at this point, like I say, nah, like we're done. Mm -hmm. We're done. We're turning around. But of course it's weighing on me and us that there's this huge storm coming, not a two or three day storm, but like this mountain is unclimbable for the next two weeks. The clock's ticking. I need to get to the North Pole after this what to do, what to do, but I'm still just too freaked out from the series of things that have happened. And it's just like, this is no longer safe. Mm -hmm. Um, but we're in a really strange spot on the mountain where it's actually particularly without a rope and being able to repel, which you would do with a roof. You had the rope. It was actually a little bit safer to sort of go up and traverse. It's hard to describe if you're not looking at it, but it was safer to go up and traverse to the right to like basically get to this Ridge that then allows you a, a more gentler descent hopefully where you don't need to propel because it was so super icy where we were. It wasn't the steepness. It was more just like how icy it was is why it was really dangerous to descend. It's often easier to go up than it is to go down basically. And so we decide to continue up to this ridge, which is another sort of 15 <laughs> to 20 to 30 minutes up. Yeah. Then you get to the then ridge. Then we get to the ridge and we're like, and you yeah. see where this is going. Yeah. Well, uh, right. I'm starting to feel good again. Yeah. There are so many times <laughs> that this, probably should have gone the other way for you yes yes um and again i feel like we're really pulling out these stories but i'm fine with well, it no on. it shows out the adversity yeah, yeah, yeah you it, know uh, what i mean it uh yeah no there was a certainly a number of moments than the ones that i've described where things are right on the edge you know things were right on the borderline and never once did i feel to be perfectly honest that i was just doing something blatantly reckless did i feel on this mountain that there was a lot more danger in climbing the mountain with a rope than without a rope sure but i've climbed many mountains solo which implies climbing without a rope that were of similar grades you know in the cascades and whatnot and so it was still sort of just right you know just like anything right on that boundary between comfort zone not comfort zone pushing just a little bit out of the comfort zone which i think we would probably both agree inspires growth versus going, you know, so crazy beyond that where it's just, you know, stupidity. So it's, uh, it has, this journey has been a true test of myself, my personality, um, understanding those limits, pushing those limits, finding those limits. Um, but there were several other times on this journey where actually I did turn around and have to go, you know, on Everest at camp four, knew the wind was too bad, turned around, had to summon the, you know, ability to climb again. Same thing happened climbing completely solo on Aconcagua. I got up to about 20,000 feet, got caught out in some bad weather and turned around and went all the way back down to base camp at 14,000 feet and summoned the energy to climb again. So there were, you know, prudent decisions make, but when you're trying to set a record and you're trying to push the boundaries of what's never been done, you, you're kind of on that edge the whole time. Yeah. Objectivity becomes a sliding scale mm -hmm. and you begin to, you begin to rationalize and and come up with arguments for pushing forward which i think brings up you know this subject of of fear and your relationship to fear you know i know in my experience of talking to conrad anchor and listening to you know interviews with guys like alex honnold like they have a very interesting relationship with fear and risk you know alex will tell you that that he's calculated all the risks and what he's doing is rational in his mind so his definition, his personal definition, uh, you know, of objective risk is going to be very different from the average human being. So where do you think you fall on that spectrum? Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, you know, Conrad Anker, Alex Honnold are in just a whole nother stratosphere of what, what they, they have accomplished and, you know, what they can do, particularly, 
you know what what Alex can do on big walls without ropes, completely freestyling stuff. Is it's just a completely different kind of climbing, but what he does is insane. It's like, insane. I mean, I'll sit here right now and say that. I mean, that's crazy. I, I admire the heck out of it, but you know, that's that is beyond my personal threshold um, for that, for sure. I would hope so. Um, and ability. Let's be clear about that as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it is an interesting relationship because. Like you said, I think that everyone, you know, we're using them as this very extreme example in this case, something that I admittedly has far surpassed my comfort level. But most of the stories I described would far surpass the comfort level of the next person. Mm. And so I think it is really, in truth, the ability to know yourself, know your own personal limits and be inspired to push beyond those limits. For me, this entire project and its relationship to the successes and setbacks we've set along the way are really a function of being an athlete and pushing my body since I was five years old. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a lot of people have asked me throughout the course of this, what was the divergence in, you know, mountaineering all of a sudden after being a swimmer or being a triathlete or being like, what's the connection there? And that mind body connection, as it relates to fear, as it relates to your own abilities, your belief in yourself, all of that is something that I've been honing at a very high level for decades. And it's a, a special gift or something that I've worked very hard for to be able to look within myself and ask myself, can you still do this? Do you still believe you can do this? Is this the right thing? And sure, some of these decisions and the stories we've, you know, I'm telling here with a, a smile on my face are pushing those boundaries. But that comes from a lifetime of pushing those boundaries. And I think that that's probably, you know, I'm not inside Alex Honnold's mind, but I imagine that's what he's getting at when he's saying, I have climbed so many rocks in my life and done so much this and I know, you know, what I know I can do and can't do in this that he believes based on sort of empirical evidence of a life's work that he can do this. And so he can tune out that fear because it's a really strength and inner belief in himself. And I can relate to that in some regard. I think that's a really important point. You know, it's very Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours-esque, I suppose. Um, And essentially you know, kind of what you're saying is it's not like you're, you know, unlike Alex Honnold, it's not like you were this crazy gifted climber from day one, but you're somebody who has put in their 10,000 hours in terms of, uh, you know, pushing your body and training like that. Your preparedness for this began when you started waking up for morning, some practice (laughs) when you were, you know, 14 or whatever, you started doing double workouts, right? Like, and your experience of traveling the world as a professional triathlete training for the Olympics, like all of these things, you're overcoming your, your, you know, injury to your legs, all of these things inform your ability to craft judgment, you know, in the, in the, in the moment of duress on that mountain. Absolutely. You're not some hedge fund trader that woke up (laughs) one day and, you know, had a bucket list thing you wanted to check. Totally. And I think it's all interrelated and it's special to know your body and mind connection in in that way. Um, And it allows you to, you know, push beyond perceived limits, um, but in a way that feels strangely controlled. You know, it's this, it's this mm-hmm. interesting place. Um, and certainly the, the mental capacity, uh, the mental strength and endurance that I think this all took was, was far outweighed than, you know, far stronger than the physical side of it, really. Um, and that piece of it, again, is just a cultivation, you know, 
you you've put in your hours in the swimming pool as well as many other endurance amazing endurance feats you've accomplished in your life and you know people say like well what did you think about when you were dragging a hundred pound sled to the south pole for a week and had no one to talk to and you're like let me tell you about staring at a black line for four hours a day since i was you know six years old like you you build yeah, that's that. the <laughs> that's the real acclimatization you know what i mean it's not just getting your heart and lungs ready for thin air it's right the mental you know drudgery of you know what that must entail for you totally totally and that i mean so many times on this you know i felt um you know at least to this point in my life obviously this is uh an amazing you know, accomplishment in my sort of whole life of athleticism, but it's, it's a testament to that entire life in athleticism. And it's also a testament to the numerous times that I've set myself a goal and failed. It just straight up failed. Like I haven't come back an Olympic champion. I haven't come back, you know, a world record holder in the hundred breaststroke, you know, like, and those are things that I've tried to do over my life. And so it's amazing now to be sitting here at 31 years of age and be able to look you in the eye and say, Hey, I just set two world records. Isn't that cool? But right. like, that's in a, in a like, way you never <laughs> imagined as a, that your athletic career you know, would, absolutely. Would develop into. Absolutely. And, and to pick yourself up again after, you know, losing or getting knocked down again is, is tough, but it, you learn from it and it makes you stronger for the next one. What does it all mean to you? What does it all mean to me? Um, there's, there's certainly an interesting relationship, um, to what I take away from my racing career. Um, which is, it's been such a privilege to experience this side by side with Jenna. Um, maybe for me, um, a lot of my personal truth is having that balance in my life. Jen and I are very different people. She's a lot more calm and patient than I am. I hope so. Um, very, you know, complimentary in a lot of different ways. But, you know, when I look back on my racing career in triathlon, I don't even really remember so much the, the wins and the losses, but I remember, you know, it's some silly taxi ride we took in Zimbabwe and the funny thing the guy said to us, you know, it's, it's these little, little pieces and the simple things, the fabric uh, of our experience. And it's interesting to have that parallel in this, in that we spent all this time not together. We didn't have the experience. We weren't looking through the same lens, the same we have in different aspects of our life. But we both two years ago committed fully to this process and playing our roles in that process. And, you know, for me, it was the guy training my body and mind to climb a bunch of mountains faster than everyone's anyone's ever done. And for her, it was being the support network, the web, the logistics coordinator, and not navigating the waters of all these various other things that go into it. And learning and growing together throughout this process has been, uh, the most special thing about it all, I think. It's her turn now though, right? <laughs> You're going to have to support her in doing something, right? Abs- I think, I absolutely. think she's earned that. Jenna, are you here? Where is she? Come over here. Yeah, get over I here. I want to hear from her I think we need Jenna bit. on the like, mic. I, I need a little Jenna perspective. <laughs> all right. All right. Sit down there for a second. I want to hear, you know, what this, this whole thing has meant to you. And also, like, clearly... You're the anchor in this whole thing. Like it, without you, this doesn't happen at all. Like behind the scenes, you you like making basically, you know, creating uh, all of these opportunities, right? All the logistics. I can't even begin to imagine. Like I would think for something like this, so vast and incomprehensible, you would have a team of people that know how to do all this kind of stuff who would come in like some kind of 
crack advanced team or something like that, but you're the one literally who's booking and crafting all the logistics behind the scenes, right? Yeah, it's been a wild ride. Absolutely. I mean, of course, this never would have come into fruition at all had it not been for Colin thinking of this crazy idea. So I give him all the world of credit for putting himself out there and really setting this massive goal. Um, But yeah, it was a bootstraps, learn on the fly, really quick learning curve for so many things from how do you brand a project to... How do we fly, you know, Colin from some of the most remote places in the world to... Yeah, like, how do you know, like, I need a helicopter. Like, who do you call? Like, how does that even work? And like, what, you're in Portland, like, trying to figure this out? At some point, you're in Argentina, right? Like, you were kind of in different places throughout this whole adventure as well. I did. I did get to go stop in and uh, see him to make sure he had all those fingers uh-huh. and toes that we talked about coming home safely with. So, and funny enough, it's one of the logistic pieces, which is I had to trade in and out of gear. So it was a double benefit of seeing her, but she'd also sort of figured out the logistics like, okay, you need this duffel bag here and I'm going to mm-hmm. bring this from here. So, yeah. Um, yeah. How do you do it? Uh, learn on the fly. Yeah, <laughs> That's you should my like, biggest piece of advice. You should move to Hollywood and become a movie producer because you basically <laughs> just produced an epic blockbuster. Yeah. You know? Hopefully one that I'll never have to produce again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it went so right and so wrong in so many different times. Of course. So, yeah. So how did you, you know, what was your relationship to fear and risk? I mean, it must have been challenging and difficult to, to, you know, sort of go through long stretches of not knowing what's going on. Yeah. I mean, I think it was an absolute blessing and a curse to know all the details. Um, cause I felt like I was really there living it with Colin at the same time. I also knew all the details and I was really living it there. Um, so the fear was real and a lot of moments, but I also felt so close to him that I kind of felt like I was there. Um, So we could kind of talk through some of those things and make sure that we were both on the same page. And now, hey, Colin, like, where's your mind at? What's your headspace? Are you okay to make these decisions? What's our safety word? Let's not like go over the limit here. Mm -hmm. And was there any moment where you thought he was, because it sounds like you were, he would butt up against that and you were the one pushing him through. But was there ever a moment where you're like, no, you got to stop? Like, at the end of the day, I so trust Colin's judgment and skills. I've seen him make really amazing decisions in critical environments before that I knew that if he could make the decision himself and I could support that decision, that it was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. So. But, but, but you'd have to know that he's making that decision objectively, right? You have to have the barometer to know, like, he's not in his mind right now. Like, I need to make him, help him make the right decision here or push him in a different direction. Absolutely. And I had so many other resources, too. So, like, on Everest, for example, the logistic coordination from Adventure Consultants. Like, I was in touch with Basecamp probably in an annoyingly amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but they gave me a ton of perspective. And... I have, you know, been living alongside Colin throughout his whole entire triathlon career. And so I can tell when he's on his limit and when he's really making good decisions. Mm -hmm. I think one of the great values of, you know, Jenna, of course, is very humble in this whole thing. Um, But uh, she just deserves, to me, deserves all the praise. But really an amazing sounding board through the process. So she's, she's saying diverting here, like I'm making these decisions and she's not pulling the strings, but it's really an ability to call home to somebody who does know all the things, who has collected the data on her own objectively, talking to base camp. Really, tell me what the weather's really doing because Colin's up at camp four, kind of out of his mind, freaking out, but mm. let's talk through what that really is. And then she can help sort of synthesize that information and uh, really ground it. 
Yeah, right. definitely. It was a team effort. Was there one crazy, scary moment that stands out? Um, yeah, I, you know, Everest, of course, comes to mind. It was probably the most intense time. It was also the craziest time zone change for us. So he was literally 12 hours different from me. Um, and it was a lot of sleepless nights. Mm. But I think, you know, I mean, I'm sure you remember this column, but you called me from Camp 4 and you were crying and you were really scared. And in that moment, all I wanted to do was say, please come down, please come home. Like, this is too much. Let's not do this. But I needed to play the role of protector, motivator, supporter. You can do this. It can be done today. Mm -hmm. And so that was a really hard moment for me because, I mean, Colin is an emotional guy, but he's not usually crying about things. And so I needed to really kind of pull myself together in that moment and support him. What do you think Colin's sort of uh, greatest talent or, uh, uh, you know, what is his edge? Like, what do you think it is that powered him or allowed him to conquer this in a way that nobody has before that distinguishes him from perhaps, you know, the other experienced climbers or athletes out there. Yeah. I think it really goes back to perseverance and discipline. Colin is the most disciplined person I have ever met. And that is the big things and the little things. So on Everest, just making sure you're taking care of yourself really on all these mountains, applying sunscreen, you know, when you need to making sure that you're being proactive and feeding yourself up there. Um, just paying attention to your hydration, all of those diligent, tiny details that mm -hmm. you really need to pay attention to. Like the pilot mentality, like of having checklists yeah. of all the little things you got to make sure that you're doing instead of just winging it. Exactly. And then when those times get tough and you're feeling out of sorts, I mean, Colin's perseverance just is remarkable. It always mm -hmm. has been. And it's actually such a pleasure to climb with him because he's so self-aware and he can almost do that without thinking about it, that he can kind of be my protector when we're out there together. So it's, it's kind of nice to have him on your team when you're out there climbing. Colin, what has been the reception within the climbing community? Yeah, you know, um, for the most part, it's been incredibly positive. Um, I've gotten, you know, congratulatory response from so many people. Um, and I think that the people that met me along the way uh, see not only the the authenticity of the adventure, but the authenticity behind the mission, um, and really seeing you know people that were in expeditions with me for a long time, uh, you know didn't didn't go along without me, you know talking about the kids that were you know following along and how excited I was to share my story with them or about Jenna and the whole sort of thing. So that's you know the reception you know from those folks have been uh, you know really really fantastic. Of course, you know there's always, uh, that little bit of, you know, well, it is the tallest mountain in each of the seven continents, but it's not the seven hardest mountains in the world. Mm -hmm. Or like, there's always a, you know, I climbed, you know, the standard route on a lot of these mountains. I climbed a, a, some of them slightly more challenging routes than the standard route, but for the most part, like I was going for speed and you whatever. You make it hard enough on yourself. Right. You know, there's always that, like, and I'm sure you've run into that yourself <coughs> in various other capacities. So well, there's yeah, always... <laughs> I mean, it, there was that when Diana Naya did her Cuba swim, uh, they, they wanted to nullify the record because she, she touched the boat. Like she never used the boat to move forward, but she hung onto the side of the boat and perhaps that violates some kind of unspoken rule about open water swimming. I don't know. Right. You know? So it's the same type of thing. And I think that, 
you know, in any sort of, in any sort of feat, um, you know, there's going to be, you know, a few detractors out there, but I'd say overwhelming 99% of the response has been really positive. And, um, to me, even more than looking for a general acceptance or love from the mountaineering or climbing community, which of course I have a high level of respect for, and I would appreciate the love and respect there. And it's been received to have the love and respect of the teachers who have reached out, the students who have written me letters, like that's what means the world to me. That's who I was always trying to reach with this project. I wasn't ever trying to go out and show the, you know, Alex Honnolds of the world that I'm a true badass or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like I, you know, I wanted to reach the kids with an inspirational mission around goal setting, dreaming big, chasing your dreams and living an active outdoor healthy life. And so the reception we've gotten in that space has been so incredibly positive and has fueled me to continue to push for my, reach my fundraising goal you know, really be out in the schools, like we said, in the fall. Um, and so for me, that that's the, the greatest success of it all and who I really care about. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think that that comes through pretty loud and clear. Uh, you know, there's no shortage of people out, you know, doing crazy adventures and races, et cetera, and tying it to a charity. But that relationship between the challenge and the charity always seems, not always, but at times can seem not strained, but almost uh, tacked like, on. Sorry, tacked on. Yeah, it's like, yeah. yeah, you're not really doing this for the charity. It's just you can say that, but it's really for you. You yeah. know, it's really so. You know, I'm getting that from you that that really is what's behind this. And yeah, absolutely. And it really, you know, I, I agree with you. And we we kind of surveyed the landscape of the space and also felt the same way about some other projects that we you know witnessed um, and wanted to make sure that that was you know really. I mean, it really is clearly our mission. So our hope is the authenticity of that uh, has shown through. And it's been amazing that my passion for this is very deep, you know, growing up in a family that supported me in such a way that I, you know, had these great opportunities and live a very healthy life growing up and giving back in that way. But it's been amazing how, even as I've been in this, my relationship and passion has grown for this cause with even more depth than I would have really realized. And I think that goes back to what I said about thinking I was trying to provide inspiration out there, but at the end of the day, it was the people, those people who inspired me. And so to continue that sort of reciprocal uh, mutual benefit of just, you know, encouragement in this space is just a, a special thing and, and, and humbling to walk into schools and have these kids, you know, want me to sign their t-shirt or, you know, uh-huh. you know, give them a hug or something like that. It's, uh, it's just amazing to see the love and joy in that room and to be a small part of that is, is really, you know, special. So as a young dude, how old are you now? 31. 31. <laughs> like a young, you're so young, <laughs> a young guy who's accomplished, you know, so much in your 31 years. Um, for somebody who's listening, who, who, you know, maybe is contemplating a challenge or getting out of their comfort zone, trying something new, you know, what are some of the principles and the tools that kind of guide your approach or that, you know, find themselves front and center in your rule book in terms of how you live your life on a daily basis or how you approach, you know, tackling, uh, you know, obstacles in your life? You know, for me, you know, the one of one of the criticisms we have gotten about this project is that it was not an inexpensive thing to do. We had to have there's no, some. There's no way it could have been. Yeah. I mean, it's, I can't imagine what this thing right. costs. I'm afraid to ask you. Yeah, you no, probably I, wouldn't tell me anyway. <laughs> but 
it, it, it wasn't inexpensive and we're fortunate to have some really strong sponsors to, you know, support that effort. Um, but we've drawn a very clear distinction around our charitable efforts versus the project. So when people are donating to our million dollar fundraising goal, we're not saying, oh, but that actually climbed Everest, but then the rest is going to kids. A hundred percent of what's donated is going directly to kids. Clear distinction there. Um, but the reason that I bring that up is that, um, my hope with this project and what I talk about when I'm in schools is not, hey, I climbed Mount Everest. One day maybe you could climb Mount Everest. It's the complete opposite about that. It's finding what is, to use the same metaphor, your Everest in your life. What, what is a goal that you can set for yourself? You know, what's around the block from you? What are things that are, you know, inexpensive to do as parents in terms of, you know, you know, teaching your kids these principles? Like, most people have some sort of green space, even if you're living in a very urban environment. You can live in New York City and you've got Central Park. There's a way to get outside, to unplug from the TV, get active, and play. You know, as a kid, this word play, we lose it as adults sometimes, mm-hmm. but just this idea of play. So I, you know, one of the core principles, you know, to your question of my daily life is, you know, what what's immediately surrounding me? Like, what can I do to enrich my life in a healthful, fun, happy, playful way? Because I think when you nurture those things in your life, it not only makes you feel better, but it makes the people around you feel better. It can, you know, people don't always put the direct correlation into, you know, better grades in school or better focus in the, you know, career boardroom with exercise. But I mean, I think that there's a very strong correlation there between that. I think I imagine you would feel the same. And so, um, you know, that's, that's the, what I think that I would instill is it doesn't have to be, I I'm a big believer in dream big, set a massive goal for yourself. Like I, you know, like I did for myself perhaps, but that's just a series of 20 years of incremental goal setting. You know, what's one step in front of me? What's Mm -hmm. the next thing? What's the next thing? Um, and so, you know, don't be shy about if you've never run before, Hey, running your local 5k three months from now, like that's an awesome goal. Like good for you. Like that should be celebrated just as greatly as for me setting a world record. You know, it's just the dedication to whatever process that is that you're passionate about, you know, go for it. What do you think would be something that people would misunderstand about you or the adventure that you just tackled like misconceptions or projections that people place on you about who you are and what you've accomplished. Yeah. You know, I think that a lot of what we've talked about, um, you know, makes for, uh, a great discussion. And I love that you tied it back into fear and my perception of that. Um, and sort of, you know, even getting me to drill down on some things I haven't thought about in my relationship with that. But there are certainly people out there, um, that look at this or maybe listen to this podcast and hear some of those stories and go, this is reckless. Like this guys unhinged. Yeah. Like you've, you know, you've got this lovely partner who's probably too supportive of me, you know, like you said, it's time for her to, it's time for her to do her thing and me yeah. support that, which I have um, a side note, hundred percent for, um, but you know, I think that that is one of the misconceptions, you know, how, how could you put your mother through this? How could you put Jenna through this? You know, that sort of thing. Um, it would really, it would take someone so like into themselves to, you know, do something like this. Well, it's that and, weird thing where we love to see people do impossible things, but then the minute 
it's accomplished, it becomes a process of tearing them like, well, that was irresponsible or, you know, like that, right. why, why, you know, what kind of person are you that would do that? Right. You know, it's like those things go together. Right. Right. And so I hope in, in, in broad strokes, that's, that's not the, the general take home from all of this, but, uh, I would say, yeah, in terms of a, uh, Are you feeling bad that we like that? highlighted these? <laughs> no, you know, actually I like it. I actually really like it. Cause I, I mean, I love this podcasting format. Um, I love the, the long form. I mean, you have a special talent and gift for it. I feel like when I'm sitting here talking with you, I'm really locked in in a way that, you know, that you don't provide the space and time, even with family, friends to really just have a long form conversation. So thank you and gratitude. That's a, a special, you. special place that you create with this. Um, but, you know, I think that in anything, those are great narrative learning pieces, whether it's I learn from them myself moving forwards or it's a just interesting story to hear, but the person listening might have made a different decision. I think that it, it sparks, you know, thoughtful conversation. And for that, I appreciate it. Is there anything you would have changed about how you, you know, navigated the adventure? There's nothing directly that I would change, and I'm certainly not setting out to do this ever again. But funny enough, like I can see how you could do it faster. Yeah. You know, that's a funny uh, thing to say. Yeah. Well, the closing question was going to be like, what's next? Like yeah. what's going to get you out of bed now other yeah. than the fundraising and the, and the kids, is there another adventure on the horizon or are your, your so are your gears already turning on that? Um, you can't do this again. Yeah, you know, marriage is on the horizon. So, <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, ending our very long engagement to actually be married is are on you the horizon. Married on the summit of some mountain. Please <laughs> tell me you're going to like a beach. The something. opposite. The opposite. We're going to the Berkshires, Massachusetts, Jenna's hometown, a oh. beautiful place in Western Mass. So, uh, we're going to get married in her beautiful hometown. So excited that? about that. Uh, next spring. Uh -huh. Yeah. And then, um, you know, there's not any specific adventure on the horizon. You know, uh, honestly, I'm still so tired and exhausted from this one. I haven't really caught up from this. I almost feel like I'm still in this adventure. So to think about the next is that. But certainly the, the charitable work, the fundraising, that's really the primary focus to continue to not just set the one goal of the world record, but get, get our second goal mm -hmm. of the, the million dollar fundraise and spread the word. Have you had your blood work done? I have had my blood work done. I was actually the first thing I did when I came home. I so was only it, in Portland for one day, um, and I, I made sure to do that because I've been sort of really moderately obsessive with that through my athletic career because I have gotten sick and overtrained at times, and that's what's really picked up on it is being really good about that. So I was more curious than anything mm -hmm. because I'm going to recover no matter. I'm going to take the time to not push my body for a little while um, and recover from all this madness. Um, but... Um, my blood work came back completely normal, yeah. except for my hermetocrit rate, um, which is the blood oxygen saturation, uh, was off the charts. In fact, right. I think that if I were in like a cycling race or something yeah, right now, like and I got tested. immediately get on the bike yeah, and see how it feels. Like I would like <laughs> test, but like my body, the truth, my body's yeah. so, they'd be like, no, he's not doping because he's way too tired. But like uh -huh. my blood level just from being up at high altitude for so long is about, you know, a good 20, 30% higher than it normally is, which is like dramatic for right. sure. But um, that, but that goes away quickly. Yeah, yeah. I think probably already now, it's been a couple weeks uh -huh. since that blood But you had no like deficiencies or any other kind of red flags? You know, it's, it's, it's really wild because, you know, I've, you know, I've flown, I remember, you know, flying to Asia for races a couple times, falling sick the day before the race and go, man, I just flew halfway around the world and like DNF'd after five minutes because I was so sick. And so one of my biggest, just like, how are we going to string together 139 days 
of that not happening. And that happening once is enough to derail this whole project. Like being in weird places where yeah. you can't eat the way that you want totally. to eat. And, all, right. all of that. And so amazingly, I'm actually kind of still anticipating the crash at some point, but um, my body held out long enough. I was actually extremely healthy through this entire process. Um, and uh, that's a great blessing. And in between each one of the, when you had a little bit of time, you know, some of these, there was a little bit of time in between yeah. the ascents, right? So what did your training look like, your maintenance training or your preparation? Yeah, there was there was a couple of breaks. I think the, the couple, you know, one and two week breaks throughout this process based on weather windows we were waiting for. Um, strangely enough, uh, one of my biggest tactics there was to eat a lot, actually put weight back on mm-hmm. um, because my body was just getting so depleted and it's getting ready to do something North Pole, Everest and I. People sometimes lose 20, 30 pounds just climbing Everest and there's no way you can lose that and then think you're going to climb another you mountain. Lose 30 pounds climbing Yeah, that's Everest? not uncommon. That really? is really not uncommon. Yeah, like that's actually more the norm uh, than uh-huh. not losing weight. Um, and so actually nutrition and food was more of a focus than, uh, physical, uh, training. But, uh, you know, when I was in Australia, I swam a bit in the ocean, just kind of keep the body active. And, uh, it's a weird thing to train for something like this in comparison to what you and I have both done a lot of, which is single day, big events, or maybe a few day, big, you know, endurance events, like mm-hmm. in Ultraman or something, there still is that taper period, that preparation. And then you're, you know, you're, you're jamming, even if it's, a long race for a couple of days, but of this course. is six months, five, you know, mm. in the end, just under five months, I guess. Um, you can't just be like fit for that the whole time. Right. Like, so it's more of just this getting my body to this plateau of being able to do a lot, but the high, different than traditional high performance. So that was unique for me. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's almost like it should be, you know, stu- like somebody should have studied the whole thing to, you know, dial in the preparation. So when you go for it again, because you really figured out how you can do it. <laughs> no, that, that was a, a, <laughs> yeah. a Jenna shaking her head over here. Um, no, that uh, that is not going to be another attempt. I was just saying after you it can be done faster. <laughs> just throwing it out there. It can be done faster. Yeah. I might not tell the secret of what I, know, that I was going to say, but, like uh, how much for the, uh, for, the <laughs> for the route that's going to make it work. The highest um, bidder. Yeah, exactly. So, so did you have, uh, is there going to be like a documentary? Are you guys working on any kind of other yeah. media related stuff? Yeah. So, you know, kind of just doing a, a bunch of fun media stuff, uh, just in, in the immediate stuff, you know, CBS Sunday morning, being on some great, you know, podcasts like yourself is really, really fun. But in the longer term media, um, I'd like to write a book about this. So, you should. Um, you know, you've gone through that whole process. So I think that's a whole other mountain to climb is that whole process and diving into this. But I'm an avid uh, daily journaler and I have been throughout my whole life, not just through this project. So um, that would be fun for me to kind of really so put the pen all, to paper. You would be able to document it pretty yeah. thoroughly throughout. Yeah. When you weren't watching uh, uh, episodes of HBO's Girls. Exactly. That was a, a <laughs> big... base camp. <laughs> I saw the tweet. Yeah. yeah. Well, believe it or not, uh, there were some times when I'm like, I remember being at the North Pole are on our way to the North Pole. It's minus 40 outside. I'm in this little tent getting blown around and I just pull up my phone. I've got this like, you know, girls, what better way to like Manhattan people right. joking around drinking cocktails. Like what's the opposite of my life right now? Put my head literally inside of my sleeping bag and just like get away from that was it all so for great. a second. Like, I felt like, <laughs> I, I felt like Leonard Dunham really should have responded to that because it's so unique. You yeah. Know? So yeah, no, uh, girls, the, all five seasons of girls, I downloaded them all and they got <laughs> me through in times they're, they're great they're that's like that's the secret that's a secret right there and i gave it away um but then yeah a, a book and then also um 
you know, we really, I try to document this project as best I can. There was a few moments when different people caught some more professional footage of me, but mm -hmm. most of it is, is me and handheld and I'm far from a professional documentarian, but I kind of live by the, I had three different cameras with me and I figured if I got out my camera as much as possible, maybe at least a little bit of be, be decent. Together. And so you we actually- You a Jimmy Chin with you. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm not quite uh, on that on that cinematography level, but um, no, I think we have a great story to tell in documentary form, really. The, and just seeing just from, even the, the little clips that we've released and Snapchats and things like that right now, we just put out a six minute sort of retelling of my Everest story. And I think for people to really lay eyes on those places uh, gives another amazing fabric to the sort of whole adventure. So we'll hopefully be able to put something together if we can find a production partner for that, um, you know, in the next little bit here. Very cool. Well, I feel like your, your story is somewhat similar to the Iron Cowboy in the sense that you did this extraordinary thing. You did it, you know, did something no one's ever done before. And you're getting media attention. You did CBS this morning. CBS this morning. CBS right? Sunday morning. CBS Sunday morning. Like, yep. That's a big deal. Like you've, you're getting some press recognition. But I also feel like you're not really getting the due that you deserve. You know, like I <laughs> feel like kind. people really should know more about like what's going on in the same way that I feel, I feel that way about the Iron Cowboy. I'm like, I don't think people really understand like how incredible that was. And I yeah. feel this is very similar to that in that, <clears throat> you know, you're making an impression and you're getting it, you're getting it out there. But I feel like more people should perk up and, and pay attention and tap into this story because it really is remarkable and incredible. And my hat is off to you, Matt. I commend you. It's really something special. Thank you. Yeah, I got to la last but not least, I, I know I'll give you the last word because you got to have the last word. <laughs> of course, but, uh, it's my show. Uh, but I one last word for me, which is I totally agree with uh, your sentiment about the Iron Cowboy. Wow, what an amazing feat. Unless, unless you've kind of lived in that space, you don't quite recognize how remarkable that is. So that was incredible. And uh, just uh, my last word is just a final shout out to the Rich World Podcast listeners. You guys have been some of our most vocal, amazing advocates throughout this process. Uh, so, uh, so much gratitude to be on the show right before this was happening. Um, but just filling up our Instagram feed with comments and likes, just so many people. I heard your story on Rich World Podcast. This is incredible. I'm, thank you for following along. Um, it's a testament to you, Rich, and the amazing stuff you put out of just like you have a great following of listeners out there and you obviously are putting out some amazing stuff so it's been a, a blessing to be in small part in the rich roll family this year so thank you to everyone out there with all the shout outs it's all the audience man thank you that's that means a lot to me i really appreciate that and it's it's you know it's my privilege to be able to put a microphone in front of you and and share your story man it's 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 really um you know it's touching to hear you say, to, to hear you say that but you know it's your story dude and uh they're flocking to you because you have something to say and you did something extraordinary the two of you together actually and uh it's inspiring dude and it just it really makes me think about <clears throat> the boundaries of human limitations you know and how we think about that because when i see somebody like you who hasn't been, you know, you weren't a professional mountaineer for 20 years before you did that. You're an incredible athlete. You obviously are extremely talented, very, you know, devoted and dedicated to, you know, achieving your goals. But um, the fact that you were able to do what you were able to do really just makes me, you know, question other things in my life and what I see around me. Because I think as human beings, and I say this all the time, it's almost like a trope, but you know, we're all capable of doing so much more than we often allow ourselves to believe. And when I see somebody like you who blows the lid off something, uh, that helps me and inspires me to look at my own life and examine it and try to be 
better. So thank you for that. Thank you for having me. All right, man. We did it. Yeah. How do you feel? I feel great. Love it. Anything else you want to say? I think that's it. Anyone who wants to check out uh, at Beyond 7-2, we still got all the photos and stuff up and retelling this story. But uh, again, just a deep gratitude and thank you to you, Rich, and uh, the Rich Roll family for uh, embracing us so much. Yeah, cool. So so definitely check out all your social their social media accounts at Beyond underscore 7-2, right, is basically where everything yeah. lives. <clears throat> and uh, go back and listen to, if you're, if you're new to the show, go back and listen to our first podcast, I don't remember the number. It was, I think I posted it in January. I'll put links in the, or something yeah, I'll like put that. links in the yeah. show notes up to everything, including that little documentary. Like I, I watched that earlier today. I'll put links up to that, uh, and tap into this guy, man. And, uh, check out his story. And if you are involved in any kind of school, high school, elementary school, whatever, get in touch with Colin and Jenna and he will come and visit and inspire your kids. <laughs> right? Yes, absolutely. Be our pleasure. Cool, man. Thanks. Peace. Plants. Where to even begin? I mean, incredible accomplishment, perhaps an even more incredible human. Really hope you guys enjoyed that. To learn more, check out beyond72.com and definitely check out the episode page show notes at richroll.com. I got lots of cool stuff there to delve deeper into Colin's world, including some really great videos that will give you a glimpse on what uh, this expedition was all about. What else can I tell you? Well, check out my YouTube channel and subscribe for vlogs and more at youtube.com forward slash richroll. For all your plant power merch and swag needs, go to richroll.com. I got signed copies of Finding Ultra and the Plant Power Way. We got cool plant power t-shirts. We got tech tees. We got swag. We got merch. We got stickers, all kinds of cool stuff. And if you're interested in following me online and you're not doing that already, uh, I'm easy to find at richroll on Twitter and Instagram. And on Snapchat, it's I am richroll. I want to thank everybody who helped put this episode together today. Of course, Colin O'Brady for being an amazing guest. Jason Camiolo for all his wizardry with audio engineering and production. Thank you, Jason. Sean Patterson for all his graphic work. Always appreciated, Sean. Chris Swan for production assistance. Chris spends a lot of time helping me with the show notes. It takes a lot of time. He helps pull quotes for the episode. It's some heavy lifting. So thank you so much, Chris. That's it. Thanks for all the support, you guys. I love you. I appreciate you tuning in. And I've got a final thought for you. What Colin achieved is superhuman. But again, I find his commitment to tackling childhood obesity, to giving back, perhaps the most inspiring aspect of his story. So the question I want to leave with you is this. How can we all do better at merging our interests, our professions, our extracurricular activities, our hobbies and our pursuits to something beyond ourselves, something outside of ourselves, something with greater meaning and positive impact than simple self-satisfaction? To me, this is the key to living a life of meaning and purpose and satisfaction. And I'm gonna take a deeper look at this in my own life and my hope is that you do as well. See you guys soon. Peace. Plants.